Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to AVHD Podcast. Today we are joined by professor here at UC, mm. Dustin Fisher. He teaches in film and in English. I met him in Kubrick and Adaptation, who we will be discussing today, Stanley Kubrick. Dustin, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Uh, w- one thing I remember from your class was just how great it was. I mean, it really opened my eyes to, I mean, one, just who Stanley Kubrick was. I mean, I'd seen The Shining before, but uh, that was the only example of Kubrick's films that I've ever seen. And it was one of those movies that even though I didn't like look in depth to it, appreciate mm-hmm. every little thing about it, it always stuck with me. I think that's the effect that kind of movie has on pretty much everybody who watches it is that it just sticks with you. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that movie's really kept relevant. I mean, oh, yeah. Re- especially now you hear people talking about it probably more than they were in 1980. Absolutely. I mean, uh, from all the uh, all the films we were assigned in that class, I would attribute A Clockwork Orange to probably being the one that really opened my eyes, not just for Kubrick, but all of film in general, really. And so I'm really excited to have you here, Dustin. Thanks again for coming excited to on. Be here. Um, we are also joined by our normal co-host here, Hunter Burris and Allison Bailey. How's hey. it going? Hello, hello, hello. hello. <laughs> I have bronchitis right now, so I'm way more quiet than I usually am because it feels like nails. It feels like, <laughs> I, it feels like I ate a bowl of nails for breakfast without any milk. Like, without any milk. Don't worry, your voice still sounds great. Does it? Sound good. I can't even, I'm not getting, maybe it's because I have this beanie on. I'm not getting any. You sound the exact It's the beanie. Of course it's the beanie. I wasn't here. There we go. That makes sense. I had fabric blocking my lovely voice (laughs) from my ears. (laughs) All right. So, as I discussed earlier, our topic today is Stanley Kubrick, arguably one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, in my personal Mm. opinion, the very best in terms of not just making film, but making art and uh, opening in a new spectrum for film as an industry. So uh, to start off our discussion, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about Stanley's life before he was a filmmaker. Uh, Stanley grew up relatively poor, not with much to give, and he hated school, which is really interesting because he's revered as one of the smartest filmmakers ever. What's his IQ? It's like something crazy. I said that was really high. So so they say it's 200, which I would love to believe, but whenever you start checking up on the sources of that, there's really almost no credible proof that that's the case. Yeah, I don't know where they got that information either. If he didn't like school, and how where are we getting the IQ test from? Yeah. I I think it's because people (laughs) are intimidated by 2001, because I can't understand what this movie is. He must be way too smart for me. (laughs) Um, He ditched school a lot, actually. Yeah, he he had a poor attendance preference to rather go see double features and films and the like. And jazz, he loved jazz, so he'd go and play jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he he, he had an average. Yeah, he was a drummer. He played drums. Oh, I didn't know that. He was he was big into jazz. So if you watch, I mean, most of his movies has some influence with jazz, especially Eyes Wide Shut. Shut, For sure, a lot of jazz. He goes to that jazz bar, and yeah, it's all from. That's so rad. That's really crazy. I had no clue. Was was it like the traditional like rock star drum set or like the the picture I saw? It's a very pared down like just a four piece. Yeah, yeah, a four four kit, probably basic ones. Yeah. Just a hi hat and like yeah, a, he loved jazz. A snare. That's so rad. And classical music, obviously. Right. <laughs> yeah. The ninth. <laughs> the ninth. Yeah. Yeah. Part of why, uh, part of his poor grades was like we said, his poor attendance. He had a D plus average in high school. Mm-hmm. Not even in the C's. A D plus. Average. <laughs> I love that. Uh, his dad was disappointed. His dad was a medical doctor, actually. Yeah. Right. And he wanted him to be a medical doctor, which. He didn't have any intentions of doing. So. Absolutely not. Why would he? Whenever he loves film so much, right? I mean, what kind of world would it be without Stanley Kubrick? Yeah, you know? he would have been a medical doctor, and we would never had it. <laughs> when, when was when was he going to school? Like, when was he born? Uh, he was born in twenty eight. Okay, yes. I have my little notes here. Yeah. Um, and I 
think I'm trying to think of when he graduated. I'm not gonna do the math, but the '40s essentially. It yeah. Was, it was at William Howard Taft High School in uh, in New York. Yeah. Oh, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, wait, he's from Cincinnati. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, they have New a brewery York. named after him. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know. Oh, 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 I was talking about say Kubrick. I was <laughs> no. like, what? The Kubrick Brewery. <laughs> the Kubrick. Yeah. The Kubrick. That's great. Uh, so yeah, he had a D plus average. He did not graduate from college, but he did uh, earn opportunities to attend some part of colleges due to his photographic got, expertise. Yeah, and he got turned down. So he yeah. tried to go and he got turned down. I D- love due that. Due to his poor grades <laughs> yeah. and the, the boom of people coming back yeah. from war to try and attend college. Yep. So that just tells you about going to college, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whenever you're Stanley Kubrick, that's not a part of the consideration. Mm-hmm. So uh, because of his fantastical photo abilities, which he was the official photographer for his high school, he did garner opportunities for college, which he didn't ultimately end up following through, but he did get an opportunity for Life magazine. Look. Which was, or, oh, Look magazine. Yeah, he was in Look. Oh, I thought it was Life <coughs> magazine. Yeah, he got his big break was he, uh, he got on at Look in high school. He was like 16, and he took this famous picture of – um, after FDR died, and hmm. there's a guy sitting at the little newsstand looking depressed, and the the paper mm-hmm. the headline says FDR's dead, and that's what really kind of shot him into. And that was fame. done by Kubrick taking that photo. Yes, yeah. that's so yes. cool to me because yes. like it makes sense. The guy has a knack for framing. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. you, he, I bet he could have been one of the best photographers of all time. If uh, his photos are great. There's um there's a couple books you can buy. They're kind of expensive, but they have his early. And he right. does a lot of just it's. Pretty typical Kubrick one-point perspective, which you get yeah. in the films. But yeah. his what's interesting is how he places the – he always takes pictures of people. So it's what he's doing with what's going on in the picture that's interesting. Right, capturing their mood yeah. of the moment, the actions they're doing, or yeah. pra- basically capturing the essence of a person and what they're going through mm-hmm. in just one single photo. It's a, lo- it's a lot of New York in the 40s, which is yeah. cool to look back on. And- oh, a lot, of, a lot of grit, yeah. which, which I thought – I mean, the, his life in New York City and New York, I mean, he – had to learn that kind of through experience. I mean, he, he probably developed that eye at a very early age of seeing the true grit and uh, imbalance of humanity that New York has. Just that yeah. raw that raw machine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I love watching videos on YouTube right now that are restored of, like, 1940s, like, Times Square. Oh, yeah, I watch yeah. those, too. Those they're are great. They're, they're so cool. Uh-huh. And I, I, it just kind of – and, like, there's nothing really happening, quote-unquote. Like, there's no objective for the video. Uh-huh. But then at the same time – a billion things are happening. Yeah. And it just, just kind of gives you perspective of that yeah. time frame. It's really cool. L- look, even during Kubrick's tenure there, they allowed him to have several, uh, they released several galleries of his photos, mm-hmm. like through through the magazine and through other uh, showcasings of just photos by Kubrick. They were a, they, they recognized what he brought, was bringing to the table for their magazine and what uh, potential he had as an individual photographer. And moving past photography, whenever he was really interested, he had the idea of, I love films. I love photography. Let's see what I can do with this. And mm. he had a personal savings bu- budget of fifteen, around $1,500. <laughs> and he was told by execs and others who he had talked to about making a short film and documentary that the required budget, the normal budget, to make a proper uh, short film or documentary was $40,000. A l- little bit off there. Yeah. <laughs> he, he nonetheless was able to squeeze out a couple with his $1,500 budget and uh, really just kind of at that point in his life, you got to imagine he was like, I'm just going all in with this. I'm going to see where this can lead me uh, to be able to draw from your personal savings like that. Yeah. Yeah, because he made a couple short films yeah. first with that. Because then I think when he did Fear and Desire, it was, I don't quote me, I think it was 10000 was the budget. 
yeah. think. Which Still is, really low, yeah, especially for a feature. That's micro budget. Didn't he do like two or three short films in the 50s? Yeah. What yeah. were they again? One was about, and I, I haven't seen them, one was about a, um, there was a funeral and then one was about, I think there was a plane. It was flying like flying. Or or yeah, there was right? a plane flying. Yeah, we, he hated we were, flying. We were looking. Yeah, he, he infamously he hated, hated flying. flying yeah. Right. We were looking. Logan and I were looking at the IMDb roster yesterday, trying to piece together a, a timeline. And I was like, oh my god, like this dude was kind of busting out short films oh, right yeah, around yeah. the paths of glory time. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in that fifties, late forties era, I, I think I don't think anything he released was in the forties. I think they were all in the fifties. No, yeah, because Fear and Desire was fifty three, which was his technical. Technically, his first first yeah. feature film. Right? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? It uh, it's hard <laughs> to watch. I think I've never seen it. I think actually Criterion owns it, which they'll make you drop thirty dollars on. But um, Jeez. yeah, to, to own on like a DVD. Uh, yeah, they own the rights. No, to for it. rent. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 it's it's a, a movie about a fictional war, and <laughs> I guess what's interesting about it is you see some of the themes that come back in later. So he has he has a preoccupation with war and he has a preoccupation with kind of perverse sexuality, which happens in in that movie. But yeah. it's micro budget. They're just wandering around the woods a lot from the parts I've seen. The coolest part is, though, the actress and I forget her name was the lead actress in The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Have you seen The Brain That Wouldn't no. Die? No, yeah, she went on to be no. in The Brain That Wouldn't Die, which is a old B movie where her head is in like a little jar yeah yeah it's very metroid it's, it's known for its gore at the end a guy gets his arm ripped off and there's blood everywhere which for the time was right kind of crazy yeah. right yeah. but anyway that's what that movie is kind of. and uh, he notoriously said that is i think he said it's unwatchable yeah. later in life yeah do, do, that in spartacus because he hated spartacus do you think if he did really? have a, a bit more of a reasonable budget do you think he could have done something a lot more with that you think maybe yeah i mean even when you get because then his Next one was Killer's Kiss, and it's kind of a noir film. Well, it's right. a noir film. And the production value is much better. Right. W w when did he make the short film about the boxer, the same one that he took photos for? When that he was, was I think that was right before Killer's Kiss. Okay. Because there's, there's an extended boxing scene in Killer's Kiss because the main character is a boxer. So they took footage from that and yeah. implemented it into that. Yeah. That's interesting. So his first major feature film that – Scholars here like Dustin who find worth really mentioning was The Killing. Yeah, The Killing's uh, great. We went over it a bit in class, and I only know the general plot of racehorse, uh, racehorsing and, like, uh, or was it dogs? No, that. Have you seen that, Allison? Cause yeah. Because you, you, you were nodding. It's yeah. I've You've never, seen it? I've never seen it. Yeah. No. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you, you two take the lead for this, uh, the, the Killing when discussion. When did you see it? Recently. When did I see yeah. it? Oh, no. The oh. last time I saw it, I was, like, 17. Oh. Yeah. And what did you think about it? Oh, I thought it was awesome. I love all of Stanley Kubrick's works, honestly. And then when you were talking about Spartacus being one of his least favorite, <laughs> that kind of triggered me because I love Spartacus. <laughs> so yeah, He didn't triggered. like to talk about Spartacus. We yeah. get into that, though. But Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of his earlier projects. So, like, what was The Killing really about? The like, Killing is great. It's a noir. It's like a heist noir movie. And love it. what's really great about The Killing is the way he plays with time in it. And I think we mentioned this mm -hmm. in class. And some of his tracking shots are really interesting in that movie. And what he's doing with morality, so Ooh. they're trying they're trying to rob a racetrack essentially. But you you get it from like four different perspectives, mm -hmm. and so the time kind of overlaps. In fact, there's a scene when they rob it, and they're all wearing, or at least the main character is wearing a um, clown mask, which Nolan stole for the beginning of the Dark Knight. It's that the same, same, the, it's same the same clown wow. mask. Which one? The yeah. one that Heath has? 
No, the one where they rob the bank at the very yeah, beginning, the and bank. they're all wearing that. Yeah, it's very similar to that match. Oh, oh wow. that's interesting. That's yeah. actually really awesome. Which I think Nolan said he, that was part of his. I honestly love Nolan. I think he's a fucking awesome yeah. director. I'm, have you seen the a new movie for him, Tenant? Have you seen the, anything about that? No. It, I mean, I've seen the trailer. The, the, the trailer doesn't really reveal too much about what the plot's about, but yeah. you see the premise of the film is basically there's a constant action of rewinding of time yeah. and the forwarding of time. So they have to deal with that. So the plot, is, like I said, has no real detail. I hope it's good. It looks really it good. It reminded me of Inception. It looks yeah, it kind of does. It, it looked like a crossover between Inception and yeah. a film he hadn't yeah. made yet or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as the killing, uh, very his- historic in terms of Stanley Kubrick. But the film, the earliest film of Kubrick that I have seen, which I just watched yesterday with Hunter here, was Paths of Glory. Oh, that's yeah. great. We, we were kind of down on it. <laughs> we really were. But you know why? You know why? So this is a little background, mm-hmm. at least for me. I just saw for the first time in its full glory, in like I, I had like my home theater set up. It's pitch black, sound systems cranked. I saw yeah. 2001 for the oh, first yeah. time. When? Yesterday. Oh wow! So what, <laughs> and, it, and it was an experience. Yeah. It was, everyone has those movies they just haven't seen, and uh-huh. that was one of them for me. And I was just like, lo- so like I finished it. I walked upstairs and like perfectly timed. Logan pulls up to my house. He get he got takeout. <laughs> like literally just rolled credits on the movie. Yeah. And he's like, bro, bro, one word to describe the movie. One word to describe the movie. What I say? Uh, fucked. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I said. I was sitting there, I'm like, I feel like I just had a psychedelic experience, and there was so much to unravel. So then we go downstairs, and we immediately booted up Pads of Glory, which is a great film for the time. I would like some context on it. I just was, I think that was a bit of a, I should have did a reverse order there, because coming off 2001, and again, I'm able to assess that. I'm not just going to unfairly judge this movie that's like 10, you know, over 10 years older than 2001. Mm -hmm. But we were kind of just finding ourselves a bit bored, I think, <sighs> yeah. when we were watching it. It, 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 it kind of felt to me how uh, the, the start of the movie was excellent. The, uh-huh. the, the first 30 minutes for me were just <laughs> baller. Yeah. And then once it got into this whole part about the execution and stuff like that, I did find it interesting. It's not that I found it interesting, but for some reason, this could have very well been an own personal thought of mine. But the way the movie felt to me, like I felt like this was going to be the middle part of the movie, the dealing mm-hmm. of this execution. And that yeah. there was going to be maybe the taking of Ant Hill for the final time for, mm-hmm. the, for the thing or an attempt, or something else, I did not expect this execution matter to last from the middle of the movie up through the end. I thought the structuring was odd, and I think that could be a product of the time. Because back then, like, the way movies were structured were just a bit more beat by beat, um, where you would you have your long takes transitioning into your next plot beat, and it was very obvious when the next part of the plot was coming. And I I, I just think it, it, I don't know, and it didn't, it wasn't very... I'm unable to recognize it, like the auteur trick mm-hmm. tropes mm-hmm. of Kubrick in that movie. I'm sure you could give us some yeah, of that, but yeah. like, so I, I think we were like, we're like, this is really damn good. It, we're just, I wouldn't yeah, want to watch it, it again. It's, it's not at all that it was a bad film. It's just that it's one of the curses of being a historic director that whenever you watch a film of theirs for the first time, you're gonna, yeah, you you you're incapable of not putting it in the light of others that they've made. And when people come to Kubrick, they don't come to Kubrick. To Pads of Glory, like right. that's what you find, and that's I. Pads of Glory was one of the last film because I burned through all of his once I got obsessed with him, and Pads of Glory was one, one of the films towards the end. The very last one I watched was Barry Lyndon, which I will rave about. Oh, oh yeah, thank you. Oh yeah, but, <laughs> most but, slept uh, on film I think, even though no one knows what the fuck Pads of Glory oh, is. Yeah. I think Barry, I think Barry Lyndon is maybe his most slept on film because it's oh, a goddamn yeah. masterpiece. Oh, so. it's yeah, but we'll get to that. Right. Um, but Pads <laughs> of Glory is interesting for context. I mean, it was made in '57. Coming off of World War II, it's a very anti-war movie. Which yeah, for the time, absolutely. 
yeah, you would have backed away from that. Right. And so it's it's very interesting because whenever he deals with war, which he does a lot in his, especially like full full, full metal jacket, yeah. it's very anti-war <clears throat> movie. And this is too where it's kind of looking at how the structure of power is located in militaries. Right. And it, not to mention that the scene where they're crossing no man's land is great. Awesome. Like, even for the time, that's Dude. awesome. The, the production well. design what as well was just yeah. insane. The production design there was unreal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, on that note, though, one thing Hunter and I thought was that do you think that film would have been better had it been in color instead of black and white? <sighs> I don't think so. Really? Why do you think that? I just sometimes I some movies in black and white, they they're just more effective. Psycho would not be as good color. We found that out when they did right. the remake. Of course. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, no. And that one just feels like, it's kind of almost the Schindler's List thing where right. Steven Spielberg shot it for certain reasons, but he said oh, to, he always saw the Holocaust in black to, and white. So. Yeah. To, to, to me, there was only a few scenes that truly utilized the black and white. The yeah. the, the storming of Ant Hill, like yeah. we discussed, whenever they go out on the night patrol, mm-hmm. uh, that night utilized patrol black and white very well. The night patrol yeah. um, And a, a few like of those shortcuts uh, to trans- transition from location to location of like, for example, the two guards walking and yeah. with the spotlight, like that was a great use of black and white. That was my favorite but shot of the film. <laughs> there was also a solid amount of the movie that was shot in broad daylight yeah where in those scenes which consumes more of the movie than the scenes we had just discussed i was left feeling like this would have been more effective in color it seemed very it muted in black and white it's, Maybe. I, it seemed muted to me i, I, I just didn't know if it was because of pro- like it was just less expensive at the time for him to film in black and white and it wasn't much of a creative choice because there were some times where i'm like we're really honing in too. yeah and i also think that like i'm relatively new to black and white and by that i mean i've seen probably two dozen black and white movies period so like whenever I'm watching one, I I crave the noir effect where I'm like yeah. I want to see shadows and yeah. grit and pores and sweat. I'm right. like that's not what that's black the, and white yeah. is. Because we you know coming off like a movie recently like The Lighthouse, I'm like I want to see that kind <laughs> of. Did you ever get to see the lighthouse? I love the lighthouse, dude. That is <laughs> that is a horror <laughs> masterpiece. I, it's, it's, it was I my sti- favorite. I movie. still like The Witch better though. No oh, way. Oh really? Wow. Yeah, The Witch is one of my favorite horror movies. What, what about? Uh, I mean, even though it's great. Kubrick, yeah. I, I would like to discuss this just a tad bit. Yeah. What, what, what would you? Obviously, you. Uh, like both movies, mm-hmm. but The Witch over Lighthouse, why? Uh, I don't... Um, Did it first, maybe? Yeah, I, I, The Witch, for me, even though The Lighthouse is unnerving, I feel like The Witch is more unnerving. Mm-hmm. And so there's I would agree scenes on that. in The Witch that just, in terms of horror, it gives you that effect. Of the, just, the Witch is may, way more a horror film yeah, than, than, than The Lighthouse. And I like that better. And I like, I think The Lighthouse is a lot more... Psychological, um, yeah, thriller, e- expressionistic yeah. in a way, yeah. which is yeah. great. Um, I uh, need to watch it if you want. I've seen The Witch thousands of times. You should so watch right. The Lighthouse more. I always say if like if Hitchcock and Kubrick wanted to like kind of have a baby, and like that's kind of what the, the Lighthouse reminds me of, just because of how and David Lynch. Yeah, well, just <laughs> yeah. so unapologetically itself, like it's a dark comedy. It's oh yeah, it's, it's unsettling. Humor, oh, yeah. Like that. Yeah, though, if you're going for horror, The Witch there, is a folktale there, horror there's, movie. There's levels to it that are increasingly hard to dissect as the movie yeah. goes on. Psychological. The, man. The, the mermaid, in my opinion, is freaky oh, as fuck. Yeah, that stuff's great. Um, and uh, this, the whole shape shifting, the whole idea that the Greek, Greek mythology, mythology behind yeah. it, it's and all, all that Kubrick, kind of right? stuff. <laughs> well, no, right, I, like you wouldn't have that. Like you wouldn't have that stuff if he it, wasn't doing this. It really right. reminds. That's why I said I'm like this feels like a product that could have been in like that, that could have come out during the Hitchcockian and Kubrick era because right. it's just it it's it just really smart. hones in it's on smart. that. 
It's, and again, it's masterfully crafted. I, I, like, I, I, <laughs> I think it's the best movie to utilize black and white since Schindler's List. Oh in my yeah. Opinion. I mean, I mean, like it literally it, it uses it to every effect. They 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 pull everything out of black and white that they possibly can. Yeah. And the fact that it didn't win uh, the oh, Oscar for cinematography yeah. was really I, I, and that Willem Dafoe wasn't nominated. Uh, like, come uh, on. Look at you're you're you're, you're preaching to the choir <laughs> here, my friend. I don't think I think ninety percent of my tweets on Twitter oh, have been me bitching yeah. about the fact. And again, <laughs> no hard hate against Brad Pitt. He did a great job yeah, in Once Upon fine. a Time, but dude, he didn't do better than Willem Dafoe. No. The, I, no. I, the Hark monologue, I mean, are you kidding well, me? Yes. You're talking about best utilization of black and white, and real quick before we get back on Kubrick, it's because like, like, I think Roma might be one of the best utilizations of black That's and true. white that I've ever seen, but The Lighthouse, they took it a step further and knew how to frame it. Mm-hmm. So like, there's one thing to do the lighting, but there's another thing to frame eight. it. Cause every, it feels claustrophobic. Well, yeah, every time is. he cuts, every time he cuts, it would like, like every new shot, every new establishing shot was eye candy, mm-hmm. and yeah. and like and and then the takes would last a long time, and like I love his motto of like you know the more takes you have, the less they mean. So like we're gonna do this in few takes as possible, or a few cuts. Although Kubrick would. You know, yell about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it just, have something to say about that. I love no, no, not. T- I didn't mean to say takes. I meant cuts. Oh, um, yeah. because I, I do love how the lighthouse is very long and drawn out, and that's what I think makes the black and white better uh-huh. because of the way they're using the characters, the costume design, the set design. Because again, like Roma really is up there with the best black and white I've ever seen in my life. I yeah. mean, it won best cinematography that year. But you can anyway. do it well. I mean, but I mean, to defend Pads of Glory's black and white, it was cheaper. If yeah. you used color back then, it's going to look like Spartacus because they mm-hmm. were all doing that uh, Spectre Vision or whatever that stuff yeah. was. It, it wasn't yet. Forbidden Planet looking stuff. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it would have worked as well. There's a charm even in there, Lolita, though. the black and white's great in the Lolita. The black and white's very so, definite in Lolita. Yeah. Mm. But you can definitely see the jump in the jump in quality of black and white itself from Paths of Glory. But what you Lolita. see in Paths of Glory, so usually there's there's so there's early Kubrick and there's late Kubrick. This is still early. So yeah. once you get to 2001, that's kind of the line. Mm, um, yeah. But you you see a lot of the same. I mean, you saw a lot of the is one point's perspective. You get the reverse tracking shots. Mm. You get the ideas about power and about masculinity. And, and so it's all there. Um, and it's just great because it's um, – I mean, it's an anti-war movie during the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's just, there's a lot is, of fascinating points. No, yeah. I, I, again, our favorite parts of the movie, I think, were just the first 30 minutes of, like, just kind of the psychological stuff. Yeah. The night patrol and the corrupted guy wanting to fire on his own men. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, the general and I, I love that and Kirk Douglas gave just a kick-ass performance. Yeah. So. That, that was one thing for us. Yeah, where the, the leading good. performances act from Kirk and the the general and uh the other uh the other general they yeah. they did awesome but for for us oh, asi- aside from the guy from the night patrol in terms of supporting the other, some of the shining su- yeah so, so uh, uh, other supporting actors did really we did not like the supporting us. cast we thought uh, it was, took us out of it really far and we don't know if that's just because it's a product again of the time where like there's just different standards because like the right, movie yeah. is very good the movie yeah, is go- really 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 good it, it is and we, we tried our hardest to view it in that <laughs> lens but i think we kind of fucked ourselves over whenever we went on i am DB and saw that it was among the it was tied for first among his highest rated films. Three way so tie. We we kind really? yeah yeah. Shining eight point four. Shining and what was it? Full Metal Jacket. No, it was the it was Shining, Paths of Glory, and Strange Love. Yeah, they're all at eight point four oh, on IMDb. Uh, so so we kind of but that's we, we yeah, went into it maybe just expecting a too a bit too much. I yeah. uh, IMDb is my bible though. Usually it's pretty accurate. M- yeah. Main thing to take away is that it's a great film. It is. It has its very unique parts, and it was very unique for its time. 
Uh, and, and he was developing his style. I mean, that's his style was. Yeah, you see it developing. Yeah, so that's so, what's so fascinating about that is you do get to see him experiment. Like the first conversation when they're at the dinner table and he's t- they're talking about Stormy the Anthill. Yeah, I'm like, dude, look how he's playing ballet with uh-huh. the camera right now. Yeah. he's swooping around the camera and like capturing this very grandeur room that they're in. I'm yeah. like, we don't usually. I'm like, that's kind of odd for the time, especially yeah. with those long of takes. I mean, I mean, well, it was somewhat normal for for long they're takes. Long, but they're long, they're long though, oh, especially man. those scenes. Right. Right, it's like theater. Yeah. It was like theater, uh-huh. honestly. So moving on from Paths of Glory over to another Kubrick Douglas collaboration for Spartacus. <laughs> you kn- you know the story behind that, right? No. So the reason he did Spartacus, or at least half of it, was because of Paths of Glory. So uh, who Kirk- Kubrick or Douglas? Uh, both. So okay. Douglas was the producer of Spartacus, and oh. I forget who the original director was, but they did not get along. I guess Douglas notoriously was kind of an asshole, um, and he didn't. So he said, "Well, I worked with Kubrick, and he brought Kubrick on." Well, the problem is, it's Kubrick, and he kind of wants to do Kubrick things. Right. And him and Douglas did not see eye to eye. So, oh wow, a lot of it. You watch Spartacus, and you're, you're kind of like, "I see Kubrick," but it feels very nineteen. And there was a lot of those period pieces coming out then. The main point about Spartacus was it was one of the first films about the roman era that didn't have jesus in it oh hell yeah i love that i have still yet to seen spartacus allison over here has seen spartacus you uh, love it i love spartacus <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry there's something classic about it, it. it was no a, it's yeah, yeah. It, it was a movie during our class he absolutely refused to discuss yeah <laughs> well kubrick said in this in this book there's a quote from him and he uh the the guy that drove him around had watched went home and found out who he was and he he watched Spartacus, and he said, oh, I want to talk about Spartacus. And in the book, Kubrick says, I, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> well, uh, really? how, many, yeah. how many Oscars did Spartacus win? It was a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, it yeah. won a ton of Oscars, yeah. and I felt like picture? it was very well-deserving. Be best best cinematography, be? were they, best costume design. Were they attributed design. to Kubrick or to uh, – I, I, don't I don't think they think were. So. No, it whenever, was like best I, costume design, best <laughs> cinematography, <laughs> right. which was yeah. kind of Kubrick, I guess. Whenever I looked it up, I mean, I can't remember the amount of nominations. I think he's received a total of like 14 something like that nominations for yeah. the academy over his career but he only won one he's never won the, a best director which was it's like hitchcock yeah he was, he was nominated for best director for if i'm not mistaken 2001 a clockwork orange uh the shining <laughs> and i think that's all he was nominated you know how many you know how many best directors in my pit like kurosawa uh, paul thomas anderson wes anderson tarantino like Orson Welles, they've never got an Oscar for directing. And it's like, right. I can go all day with people like that. Orson Welles was snubbed because he was also kind of against. There's reasons Him and Kubrick there. are kind of similar where they're very. Same with Chaplin. Like, they, the Academy anti, did not like yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. That's probably why they never gave him more than they did. Yeah, and Spartacus <laughs> had some serious star power in that movie. It's like Tony Curtis, Lawrence right. Olivier. I mean, they were huge back then. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like you said, it was a, of the time, a time mm-hmm. period piece where, I mean, you could attract all the stars because those were the movie, movies raking in the most money during that right. time. Mm. And it's a great movie, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying Kubrick did not. I guess no, he all these are. Ca- he did not care for what, it because what, he didn't are. see it as his. What were the strong points of Spartacus, in your opinion, Allison? Um, I thought the cinematography was awesome, and I'm pretty sure it did win the Oscar that year for did. Best Cinematography. And I loved I, just the way they were able to adapt. Because I was going to ask you, so I thought it was like his for his first like kind of wartime movie, but mm. I didn't know Paths of Glory came mm-hmm. before that until like a couple hours ago. Did he like 
take pieces of Paths and Glory and kind of incorporate it I don't actually into? Know. I don't know. Okay. Because I don't know how much he directed is the thing. A lot of people yeah. don't know how much. Well, yeah, I had no idea yeah, that he like didn't halfway. even. Yeah. How, how much of Kirk Douglas from Paths of Glory would you say is in Spartacus? Probably a lot. Really? Okay. You think he carried yeah. over a the similar thing, character? The thing to really drive the point home, they never really talked like, after that. Uh, and oh. you no- you notice that Kirk Douglas is not in him, any of his movies ever again. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So something happened. I don't know a lot of the details, but the, the, mm. what, what really one of the only repeating actors for Kubrick was um, Lloyd from The Shining. Yeah, Lloyd from The Shining. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the guy who plays Alex's father yep. in A Clockwork Orange, who's in Barry Lyndon, A Clockwork, the... and Shining. Yep. Uh, well, what's his name? Do you know? The actor. The actor. No, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, they're, they're all minor roles, but I mean, he's the only one to I think have been in more than two. Yeah. Shelley Duvall, I know, wanted to be in a oh, lot man. more. Just, that's a, that's a joke. I was going to say Shelley Duvall. Well, I, I that's, that's something I noticed is that like, and I think that is because of the fact that it really is just such a demanding project to go undergo that you don't see a lot of returning cast yeah. members in his movies. Yeah. You don't see that. Like, in and what's odd is it's a mixed bag of reception. Some people say it was an honor and the best teaching experience they've had as an actor or actress and then a lot of people are like i would never fucking do that ever yeah. again right <laughs> well well the the actor who might not have been in the most individual movies for for kubrick but has played the most individual roles would be far and away peter sellers who yeah. who uh moving into, Lo- into yeah moving yeah. into lolita and in both and in both films he played more than one role yeah uh mm-hmm. so for lolita uh moving into lolita uh that was the first film of Kubrick's that we did in class yes. if I'm not mistaken yeah and to be honest I it's not that I didn't like it it's just that at that when I, whenever I saw the film I was like what is the hoopla not even that I'm my whole thing is he had to have known the controversy and the backlash he was gonna get yeah, on did. doing that type of movie so why why did he decide I want to do I mean the, the, the little marking for the movie he showed us marketing for the movie that he showed us in class was how did they make a film yeah. about Lolita yeah. like like just basically driving home the point of how did we even make this movie can you guys summarize Lolita for people who don't know what Lolita is <laughs> <laughs> like me oh, I, don't, I don't know so shit about Lolita background what, the class I taught that you were in was about adaptation so I couldn't do all of Kubrick's movies because there's certain ones that he didn't adapt from novels. Um, or, like 2001, he was writing it. They were directing it as Arthur C. Clarke was writing it. So right. it really wasn't an ad- adaptation. Lolita had a huge, it was a huge sensation when it came out because it is so raunchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's not. And Kubrick was, he loved reading, he read everything he could, and he loved the book. Mm-hmm. But getting that made, um, oh, alarms. <laughs> I heard that the studio is going to explode. <laughs> oh. um, so what the hell? I've got distracted. What happened? Yeah, sorry, I, no, I, that's I, cool. I, it wasn't. Oh, my but so <laughs> you've read it. Have you read? It? Has anyone else read? I've read like, it. Read it. Yeah. It is yeah. a disgusting yeah. book, and I've it seen the, and I've seen the new remake yeah, of Lolita, and that's. I mean, yeah. I mean, pretty much. Whenever well, we were reading about? that book, I don't even know what it's pedophilia. About. Well, oh, okay, yeah. it's, it's a guy. It's a guy who's moving oh, over from uh, he, England. He gets England. He gets a new university job, and he's touring homes to pay rent for and live in. And he finds this house that has a woman and her beautiful daughter, Lolita, who is fourteen, I believe. In the, she's oh, supposed to be in the movie, in the book, she's twelve. Yeah, in the book, yeah. she's not even a fucking wow. teen yet. And I mean, basically, in the book, whenever we got to the part where he ejaculates from her just merely touching him yes. on the couch i was like okay that's <laughs> just yeah. closing it putting it down i was like 
I'm not so sure about this one anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just it goes into the type of detail that the movie just simply can't. No. Yeah. Um, and which, so, when you watch the movie, the way he adapts it. So I love. I'm I'm biased because I love Lolita. I think it's underrated. But um, the way he is able to talk about that stuff by using humor mm-hmm. is almost. It's almost better than the like the nine was it ninety seven where they yeah. just show literal sex scenes, right? Yeah, I was gonna say like the like his version, for obviously for that time it was still pretty like risque for him to even mm-hmm. like, adapt it, but like the newer version from like the late nineties is yeah, like it's, oh it's really hard to watch. It's like, I had much. a very difficult time sitting through the whole thing. And it's Jeremy because, Irons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to watch. I wouldn't want to watch. It's it made rough. me very uncomfortable. Yeah. And in the nineties version, they make her twelve. Like right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when he had Sue Lyon, who recently died. A Months ago, oh wow, yeah, she was like 72, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, they specifically said she has to look like a mature woman, like, you can't have so when you see her in the movie, she's very much depicted as a teen, like a high end teenager, right? Well, yeah, Whereas I didn't know the, about that in the book. She's 11, 12, which is well, I've seen footage and I never would have put that together because <laughs> you yeah. know, it's already hard enough to tell how old somebody is, but let the, alone. And the amount of tongue in cheek in the movie is uh-huh. so hilarious, yeah, that you have is. to. Like, there's that scene where they're at the school dance, uh-huh. and it's all, like, about swinging, but you can't, because yeah. the two couple comes in. Oh, that, that scene's actually really fucking And they start awesome. dancing together, and then she's talking about the kids going over to yeah. the other person's house, <laughs> and then he could come over, but he's not interested in this mature family. He keeps watching Lolita, Lolita. dance with, like, yeah. guys. It's just, it's just hilarious when you watch this stuff, <laughs> but then it's unnerving, because you're like, oh, right. it's still about pedophilia and then, but that's and, hilarious and the, to me the, the sexual no, un- yeah it's dark yeah. it's dark the, the, the sexual undertones from various characters not even just lolita no. or robert mason's character but you know for say the uh the hotel cashier oh, yeah. talking to peter sellers and it's just like like and he keeps he, he, touching him yeah he's like very yeah. obviously like slipping these gay sort of undertones uh-huh. and the the guy robert mason's character uh what's dr hubber hubber that's yeah. right uh he meets at the camp whenever he goes to pick up lolita and she's like do you know lolita she's like oh yeah, yeah, the young I know kid. Lolita. Yeah, the young kid. <laughs> he gets all concerned because she he's she gets sent away to an all girls club or all girls camp called Camp Climax, which ha ha ha. See, you're laughing. And when he comes to pick her up, there's oh this like God. young teenage boy, and he keeps getting all awkward because this kid's standing there. And he goes, "Oh, you know Lolita?" He's like, "Oh, I know Lolita." And it's just, <laughs> but then there's the scene where they're at the hotel, and because um, Peter Sellers is a genius in that movie. He and is. he's talking to the the homosexual front desk attendant. He's talking about karate and how his wife throws him around and she lets him <laughs> he lets her and that stuff was like it's so funny, but you have to pick up on it and for what was that, nineteen sixty two? I didn't like, know that right. it was that kind of vibe. I need to watch yes. this movie. And there's a strong like homoerotic vibe between mm. him and Humbert Humbert. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Like a top gun kind of thing. The, 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 kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a scene. No volleyball where, though. Yeah. Uh, Hummer Hummer doesn't want Lolita to be in the play because he he basically has this attitude of keeping her all to himself. Yeah. And Peter Sellers dresses up. L- Lolita and Peter Sellers' character, forget his name, have met at this point, and they basically... Uh, Quilty. He's Quilty, Quilty, that's right. Claire Quilty. They basically uh, come up with the plan to convince Robert uh, Hummer Hummer by Peter Sellers dressing up like a Russian... Uh, uh, he's, like a, he's like a German psychoanalysis. Yeah, 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 yeah German, German like psychoanalysis yeah. uh, doctor, and he comes to him. He's like, "It's 
it's critical for your daughter to be in this play. For her sexual, like, yeah, yeah, it's for yeah. her sexual maturity. It's <laughs> hilarious. Right, and um, it's just hilarious. It's so funny. And, but, he, um, but he used that character. That's the character he got for Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can, you, over. You, you can totally oh, see yeah. the comparisons the between same. those characters. I can't wait to talk Mind about that. Yeah. I, I can, can walk! <laughs> Why would you bend the doom device and not tell anyone? <laughs> No, we might as well use the opportunity to go ahead and segue into Dr. Strangelove, which was his next, w- <laughs> next Dude. film. Dude, this is per- probably personal. I mean, it's very hard to pick a Kubrick favorite, but if I did have to pick one, it probably would be Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just <clears> one of those movies where a lot, all of his movies have rewatchability to me, uh, excluding Barry Lyndon, not because it's not good, but because it's so it's, long it's and, three hours. It's, and yeah. just dramatic. It it's one of those movies you might watch every couple of years or uh-huh. once a year or something like that. But Doctor Strangelove is a movie I could watch once a week if I really oh, wanted that's to. Hilarious. That's I what mean, we decided on yesterday. I mean, <laughs> we said it was no. We literally said like, what do we think is the most rewatchable Kubrick movie? And I'm like, he was like, I think Doctor Strangelove because like every time you watch it, it gets funnier and it's and just such an easy movie to enjoy. It's, it's like an mo- hour and twenty minutes. I, I mean, think. I mean, th- literally line after line has depth and comedic elements oh, yeah. to it, even if they're just simple <laughs> and, and like three words or something like that. I mean, I of course, the, one of the most famous ones being. No, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. Yeah. This is the war room. This is the war room. Uh, d- just full of quotes of that kind of nature, all of which are hilarious. And the characters, uh, to me, of that film are part of what makes it so awesome to me. Uh, all of the characters Peter Sellers plays. Sterling Hayden's character of the general gone crazy. Oh, he's the, the rainwater. Bodily, bodily fluids. Bodily fluids. But she's in The Killing, too. I forgot. He's in there, too. He's yeah, the he's, he's the, the, the main character. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's just one of the best. Something like that I've noticed. So I, I'm just now getting really familiar with Kubrick. Up until this past year, really. The Shining was the only thing I really was yeah. exposed to. And something I, I think that is so crucial on my watch-alongs with Kubrick's films are considering context. Because with The Shining, I'm like, man, this must have blew people's minds, like the technicalities and the way he told a psychological horror. And it then, didn't. like, it did. I mean, but like, <laughs> not at first, it didn't. But then, but then getting into like a dark comedy about nuclear war during the Cold War when Cold War <laughs> yes. tensions were so very high with Russia. I'm 64, like, like at I'm their like, highest. This uh-huh. must have scared the shit out of people. And then again, like yesterday, I watched 2001, and I'm like, this must have literally gave people brain boners and blew their mind. Like, this doesn't make any sense that they saw this. So. I think that one of the most fascinating things about Strange Love is that he had the balls to just have so much Absolutely. fun with the subject matter. Yeah. And, and, and what he did he also had the balls to not just go completely comedic with it. He, yeah, it's he, not he, lampoonery. Right, right. Kind of. he, he, yeah. He, yeah. He, he managed to encapsulate these really, really fucked up undertones in the movie of the carelessness of humanity uh-huh. and the willingness to sacrifice what you don't know. <laughs> And uh, the disgustingness of men. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. W- w- that's, a, that's a reoccurring w- theme. <laughs> w- 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 one thing I wanted to talk to you about is that you know how the Russian ambassador says in Dr. Strangelove that the doomsday device triggers automatically once a nuke is confirmed to have impact. However, in the last minutes of the film, they're talking about going deep underground. How, to reproduce. How, yeah, how, yeah. How, how, yeah. how they can't. Uh, bring all the people that they really want to and how women <laughs> must be chosen for their sexual uh, parts. And uh, yeah, he, he, does does the, the, he does the math real fast. The, 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 the abandonment. Three women to the, every man or something like if that. If we yeah, think yeah, about the, it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the complete abandonment of uh, commitment and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, but And after all of this, he says, that's a mighty fine idea. The Russian ambassador, that's a mighty fine idea you have. And then he walks off and sets the trigger, which basically triggers the Doom device, which basically was the way i look at it the doomsday device actually wasn't automatic it was only a threat and that 
he chooses to do it because after after initially realizing after a, a period of time that it was an honest accident and that this general did just go crazy, that last discussion and the disgustingness of it is what says, you know what, these people can't be saved. The world is fucked. That's an interesting way let, to look at that. Let, let's because yeah. th- then you just watch nuclear bombs dropping. Right. With uh, Vera Lynn playing, which is a great <laughs> ending to a movie. So, I think it's, it's one of the best closing shots of all of his movies. Oh, yeah. The waving of the hat on the bomb. But what about the intro with all the phallic, the planes? <laughs> like, it's that I love, love that intro. I love so it. So ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Ants on the Hill. And I, I love how James Earl Jones, James Earl Jones. is in that movie, too. That like, was, that, that yeah. just makes the movie just even better, the yeah. fact that he's in there. It's like, oh. Uh, I just think this is uh, like, I, but we're talking about all these things that were kind of new for him and maybe not new for Kubrick but like I feel like this is when it's like yeah I'm Stanley Kubrick motherfuckers like I'm gonna have an actor playing three different characters I'm gonna have some really crazy subject matter that is in the forefront of everybody like a lot of people at that time they're just not gonna go see a pedophile movie like Lolita whatever but everyone is scared (laughs) of nuclear war right right. and like and that being a popular movie at the time it just increases tensions and like I and it it wasn't soft on it. So I just think like we're really starting to see like the tropes of who he is really in that movie. What is also 64. great about something like Strange Love, and you're talking about how it's funny. I mean, it was made in 64 about Cold War politics, which right. it's so timeless, though. Like You can yeah. watch it now and laugh. Because Absolutely. Of it. And it, I could see you making, and I think when he, because the book is based, it's called Red Alert. And he read it, and they were going to start shooting the movie based on the book. And the book is very serious. It's like, right. oh, the Russians are going to bomb this thing. And he oh, really? started, yeah, he started shooting it and thought, this is ridiculous. Like, and that's <laughs> how they just made it. It was almost like snakes on a plane or something. But right. Yeah, like, yeah. this is so ridiculous. We're just going to make it. And it worked. Like, it would not have worked if it was red alert. Where, right. Oh, yeah, the Russians are. Coming and it's and and the disclaimer at the beginning ridiculous. of like none of these people are supposed to represent actual yeah. people in our military. The Air Force themselves has said that they have preventative measures that prevent something like this from yeah. ever happening, which so makes it even greater. Because I'm like this, like I, I was like, is that a com- comedic beat or like were people really like free? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, I mean, the yeah. Air Force actually made him put that in the movie because they redid it was the B-52 uh-huh. and they said it was so accurate that the Air Force was questioning them how they got the information to reconstruct <laughs> yeah the interior of the. Plane. That's a Kubrick thing in general. That's a Kubrick thing. To be quite honest, I, I that's how you get moon moon landing uh, conspiracies. Well, well, <laughs> seriously, though, well, well, one one thing I, I also noticed for Strange Love when I rewatched it with him uh, earlier is that in terms of the transitions from scene to scene, I honestly see a lot that transfers from Lolita over to yeah. Doctor Strange Love. Just the the fading out, the the yeah. the music and things of that nature. How he really kind of carried that transitional behavior from Lolita and over that's to kind Doctor of his, Strange Love. That was his last. Um, of the early, because then next was 2001. Right, I mean, after that, yeah. it so was, Strange Love was, was 64, right? Yeah. 64, and then he... 68 was... Uh, like, I... When, when we talk about 2001, like, I have notes on my phone about <laughs> you it. You want to go ahead and just I, I just, I've just never seen a movie like that. I and mean, no, no one really has. That's part of why no it stands the test of time. Well, something for me was, like, I felt a... I was really jealous yesterday while watching it and jealous of the people who got to see it at right. the time. Yeah. Not that my experience was robbed in any way, but I just... I don't think I could even imagine what it would be like to be in a cinema and seeing a lot of this stuff for the the first time. And like how and it was very very accurate. Of course they didn't know that at the time, it, it but was, it was it was the first sci-fi to ever really account for the actual laws of space rather yeah. than just well, making oh, it yeah, all that too. if they even actually exist. Right. Oh God! Tinfoil, <laughs> tinfoil hat over here. I, I was waiting. Calm down, like, Alex like Jones and Eddie. Yeah, I like when the tinfoil comes. Eddie out. Bravo has a theory <laughs> over there. I, I no 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 hate on those guys. Those guys are awesome. But I I 
Can I say one last thing about Strange Love though? Yeah. Oh yeah. Go yeah, for yeah. It. One of my favorite scenes, and it's kind of one of this though, is the one where they call the general Turgeson, and he's yes. in the bathroom, and she's just laying there like sun tanning, and she won't go. He's like, "Who is it?" He keeps yelling for. That's it's important. It's important. Ah, tell him to call back later. I, I think it's one of the best introductions jo- to a character. George yes. C. Scott in general is so amazing that oh, movie he's i love him movie. trying to explain plan r to the president he's like he's like you must understand president you, you're the one who signed it and the scene where he's just chewing, chewing bubble gum <laughs> yeah and, the, and his uh, girl calls him, he's like what did i tell you about yeah. calling me here <laughs> <laughs> I, that, he was i don't know who was my favorite character in that movie Prob- there's so many probably i mean at the end of the Doctor Strangelove at the very last second kind of stole it from me all of a sudden yeah. like trying not to do the Nazi salute like yeah. his programming coming through and have, you, have you noticed too in that I scene whenever back. he's trying to stop himself there's people in there's the back people who laughing. can't laugh the Russian, they, they, the they're literally the laughing is cracking yeah. up. I love yeah. that I love people breaking though <laughs> yeah. yeah shout out to that movie I think it's yeah, a 10 out of 10 great. I gave it a 9 when I first saw it now I do think it's probably I remember I took because um, I liked it and I, I took my wife to see it they played it at a theater up in Dayton and I said oh I want to go see this on the screen and I remember we left she was like, I, I don't get it. Because I was cracking up. Like, And it's it's a very – the humor is so dark. You have to be intuitive. It's sarcastic. And it's so – yeah. You but don't there, get that this, kind of comedy anymore. Right. A, but it's satirical, though. Yeah, because Because I, 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 for me, I'm a big fan of things like South Park and stuff where you, oh, have, yeah. you have people in authority kind of acting just stupid. And it's usually over a reason that doesn't make any sense. So as soon as the – the general gone rogue started being like, "Have you heard of the bodily fluids? <laughs> the bodily flu." I'm like, "Oh, I'm all about have, this." Have humor. you ever heard of fluoridation? Yeah, mandrake. <laughs> And that, <laughs> that shot where he's smoking the cigar is great. Oh, like dude, that's, oh, we were talking th- th- about th- that. That's honestly probably my favorite quote. Whenever he says, um, "Do you know what who and who said about war 50 years ago?" Uh-huh. He said, "War is too important to be left to the to the generals." Back then, he might have been right, but today. <laughs> War is too important to be left to the politicians. They have neither the strategy, the inclination, <laughs> nor the attitude for strategic warfare. <laughs> Something he pulled, along he those pulls lines. that machine gun out of the golf. No, he, golf he pulled bag. a fucking yeah. Gatling gun yeah. out, of his golf, out of his golf bag, dude. Yeah. And he's like, "Here, you're gonna feed come, me the feed me come, the ammo." Come, man, come, Andrake. Oh, sir, my see, my leg's gone a legs. bit gimp. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a. I I have wonder if that was a cut at the president's <laughs> always golfing. Oh, oh because, my God. Yeah, that's a good thing. Around that time is when you saw more like Eisenhower go golfing, and, the, and right. now that's a reoccurring political. You know, You're right, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder if it was. Ha- I wonder if it, I've never looked. Definitely at it. more public eye. Yeah, when he pulls the <laughs> he pulls like a 50 millimeter gun out of the. <laughs> and that was so great, but it, when he it, shoots himself in the even when he shoots himself in the bathroom, yeah. and he can't open the door. Yeah. It, it's hilarious, but yeah. it's not. I mean, it's supposed to be, but. It's, it's, it's one of those things where Peter Sellers brings a lot to the yeah. table for a movie like that, and you can't help but he wonder how much of Sellers' genius is part of what makes that movie what it is. Yeah. But, uh, but as all the characters he plays, are, his, mo- his my favorite for him in terms of the characters he plays is Mandrake. I mean, I love the character of Mandrake. The president is also yeah, awesome. Strange love is and mine. Stra- strange love steals the ending of the movie. So they, 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 they all are just amazing. I can and then, walk. then, so then you go for a movie like Doctor Strange Love, which yes. is so he. So one thing about <coughs> his personal life. Um, okay. In the '60s, he left the U.S. Who did? Kubrick for UK. Okay. At Lolita, he shot in England, and he never came back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, he and so this is where he starts to get this reputation in the press of being a recluse and a hermit, and and it really was when you when you really start looking at him, he was a family man. He loved his family and his cats. Um, yeah, he did love his animals, 
but he liked his privacy. And so mm-hmm. it was like he lived in a house and he but he did when he shot a movie, he did everything. It was everything. Market I mean, clear down to marketing. He he had one story where I think it was in London, they had the display for full metal jacket in the video store wrong. So no, he yeah. made someone go and rearrange yeah, yeah. Leon had to go re and it was that level of meticulousness that you don't see as much on films anymore because it's such a huge production. Mm-hmm. He did it all himself. Yeah. And he was so successful that the studio just kind of went, here's a check. <laughs> yeah, well, the, well, the, the, guy from, the guy from Warner, the former president of um, video distribution, said, you know, should have saw this coming given that it's Stanley Kubrick because like, they thought they could get away with the arrangements they so, had yeah. for the video, and he literally went there. and Which kicks Leon him in the ass it. with Eyes Wide Shut, which we'll get to when so, we get So, so w- w- one thing on this point, though, I would like to discuss was, do, do you guys think Kubrick targeted controversy as a director? Do you think? Do you think he tailored think his he films drawn to for it. controversy? Yes. I think yeah. he was drawn to it. Le- in a w- in a way, yes. I I th- I I can't help but think in a way too. I don't think he necessarily. I don't think Kubrick ever sat down and said, "I'm going to make this film because it's controversial." No, he didn't because, shy from it. No, but 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 he knew the elements of co- that controversy brought to the table in the film industry, of not just within the industry itself and those who mm. make it, but the audience of the film industry and how the word of mouth, the word of newspapers and press. You know, encapsulating no press is bad press. Yeah, so, so, sort until of Clockwork Orange. That's yeah. a whole, when we get yeah. to that. Yeah, that was yeah. Like, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. And he was really upset. Um, hey, hold on just a second, guys. Having some issue with the recording. Hold that thought real quick. You were saying in, until clock, hold on. Three, two, one. Until Clockwork Orange, what were you saying? We can edit that Oh, the press. It, it, well, we'll get to it. Because we'll the negative it. press for Clockwork Orange really hurt him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people weren't watching the movie as they were supposed to be. Yeah. And if we're How doing they? they well, when Clockwork came out, it was so controversial and so violent and so for the time that in England they started the press started doing hit pieces on him saying that he was causing violence in England mm-hmm. because at the time politics things going on yeah. In the early 70s, th- it, there was crime was rising, but they're trying to find a scapegoat to blame it on. We saw this recently it, it, with Joker. Right. It, it started the debate of yeah. our music and film responsible Correct. for increasing. And so debate. video games cause school shooting. Right. It's yeah. nothing Fuck new. Off. Like it's been, right. It's <laughs> yeah. nothing new. Yeah. But he chose to pull clockwork um, after I was 80 days or something. It really? You couldn't shit. get it in. <laughs> the, Ironically, you couldn't get in England until 2001. A, a source I was reading was saying that select theaters, not all, not national release, but select theaters were running the film for up to two years, all the way up wow. until 1973. And that, and sometime in 1973 is when he decided to pull it yeah. from everything. Yeah. Because well, uh, his family was getting death threats and stuff. I would like, say yeah. it's one of the most controversial movies of all time, especially with the advertising campaign. You know, so what was the quote about rape and on the poster? Like, literally he, on- he loves rape, ultraviolence, yeah. and uh, the Corova, something about milk. Yeah. Oh, no, Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah. And he loves Beethoven. It's I, such I have a genius movie, though. No, like, yeah. Well, well, I grew well, to love that movie. I didn't care for it at first. And oh, then dude. I grew to love it. Well, we'll, 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 we'll get more into yeah, clockwork yeah, here soon. Okay, yeah, let's yeah, talk about. I'll hold my thought. We, 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 we got a big one to discuss. I want to talk about clockwork. 2001. <laughs> so we're going to segue in 2001 
And really, this movie was a sonic departure from what Kubrick had done in the past. Yeah, from what anyone, from had, anyone done. had done. And, and, and exactly, exactly what I was about to say. Jinx, a sonic departure, not yeah. just for him, but the entire film industry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no one, I mean, silent films were a thing of the past, but there's only 40 minutes of dialogue in the entire yeah. film. Is that, like, really? Yes. Yeah. And what's funny, though, is, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I never no. found myself being like, someone needs to talk already, because right. it was more about, like, an elegant presentation. I wasn't witnessing tension, and I'm like, I need to know who these characters are. But even when they start talking, it's nonsense. Yeah. What's so, the yeah. first line in the movie? I don't even remember. It's, uh, they're on they're the like space station. They're each other at the Hilton moon base. At yeah. The, at no, the, the Pan Am. The, the Pan Am uh, rocket ship yeah. picks him yeah, yeah, and it's just nonsense where they're just sitting and talking to the Russian ladies, and it's on purpose because the whole thing, I mean, he, I there's love a that lot scene, about communication in it. And, and, then well, they, and then they start talking about this mysterious thing they found yeah. on the moon, yeah. the monolith. Um, can so, I, can okay, I read so can, what I wrote? Can I say, though, can I ask? I'm going to ask. The first time you watched it, because you didn't watch it, yeah. How bizarre is the first five minutes of black screen and nothing happening but you know, sound? Okay, so what I did last night is I, I, I watched the movie, um, and I just recently got the movie. So, like, I thought something was wrong with my Blu-ray. Like, I, 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 <laughs> so, like, what I did was I'm in a completely pitch black. Like, my theater room is dark. It's dark. And, yeah. like, and so I kind of got freaked out because it's just like, oh, <laughs> for a couple minutes. Like, literally, I think it's like three minutes before yeah. the movie starts. So I paused it. And made sure that my disc was working, and I literally went back and checked my HDMI cable to make sure it was working. Like, yeah. I, but the thing that's weird is I could see the pause menu, so I'm like, okay, I'm still getting the movie, but I'm not getting any feed. And like, yeah. I fast forwarded to see if the movie does come in, and then I rewound it back. Yeah. It was very bizarre, yeah. and it does it after the intermission too. But I really, yeah. loved, I loved it there. I, I, I can honestly yeah, say, speaking on that opening and how ominous it is, two thousand, uh, The Shining was the only horror film Kubrick ever made. But to me, two thousand one has more there's horrific some, yeah, parts than The Shining. I mean, yeah. like, th- there are just some truly parts where you're so left in the dark as to what is happening. Very disturbed. And what you are seeing and witnessing, and what you are able to put together, is just really heavy. Just, just dark, and like, like as if there's so, you just get this incapable feeling that you are being bestowed with knowledge that you're not comp- able right. to comprehend yet. Yeah. And that knowledge is scary. It's not good knowledge. It's it's scary that you almost don't want to understand. Well, um, and I, I think that, and, and just in some ways, 2001 is more scary to me than The Shining. Well, in certain segments yesterday, I mean, I don't know, like watching certain scenes of like, I think the movie is very isolating. And I've never really. I, I asked him to watch the movie by himself because I think that's how the movie works best. I it, yeah. I, I think it really it's co- it complements it. Like I think when you watch it loud on a big beautiful screen in a dark room, like I think it feels like an out of body experience. Like I mean, all movies do when you watch them in that condition. It's like going to the theater. But like I really did have this sense of like I didn't feel like I was watching a film. I felt like I was being presented something. I I don't really know how to put it into words. It, it, it's that that's what's so but that's what's well, amazing about the game. it. I mean, Absolutely. it was just so eloquent, you know, like I, it's like something I wrote yesterday. Again, I'm like, I'm legitimately jealous of the people who got to see it in 68 because the something I loved was how the movie took its time uh-huh. with the technology uh-huh. because and I wondered I didn't know if that was because like I was telling Logan, the movie had a sort of metronome to the to the scenes where everything was always in like a rhythm. Right. And I didn't know if that was because he didn't want to confuse people too much because a lot of that stuff there was pretty unheard of video chats and like this was the we yeah. haven't even, we didn't even put a man on the moon yet when this movie right. came out so way before Interstellar but I also it just it fits <laughs> which rips it off a lot <laughs> yeah Interstellar rips it off way too much I, I, but like I just thought the movie had this sort of eloquence to it where it felt like I was watching a very 
like a symphony in a well, way. Well, it is a lot, and especially when it's like the Blue Danny B. Waltz, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Just, and he was, and what he was doing there was, again, it was revolutionary where he was combining classical music with movement of film. With because before that you had soundtracks, but it was very they did the mm-hmm. orchestral strings. And, yeah, and this was you know. The movement of the spaceships and the movement and everything right. spinning and how good it, it, it looks. It's very too. juxtaposed yeah. as well because you have this old original orchestral symphonies matched with with that what at the time during the moon landing is the future space right. and and space exploration. So it's literally taking what has run through the course of history and what is going to become. And there's our still history. Cold War politics in it. Which right, is hilarious because <laughs> it's like those. So those satellites you see. When you see it on the big screen, you can tell there's actual country flags on them. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there was, and they were supposed to be satellites for. Have you seen the news. remastered version, the 4K version? Uh, of it? I saw. I actually got to see it in 70 millimeter on IMAX. Oh okay, wow! Yeah, that'd be gorgeous. And it was. Like, that had to be an experience. You felt it in your chest. It's so good Literally. watching it. <laughs> the, the 4K disc, I recommend if anyone has a good player. I have or a the good Blu-ray, screen. but it's dude, it's so nuts. I haven't gone to 4K yet. Oh, you should. We'll talk about it after the show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I really like the point you made about it taking its time, though, because, I mean... Th- it's conservative. It's, it's very conservative, and it's very... I mean, the the uh, edits and the design of the film were just so unheard of at the time. Yeah. And, I mean, literally, like, w- he asked me, uh, Dustin, and we, we, what we went over in class was that scene where he's jogging yeah. in the station. He asked me, how was that filmed? Like and, I, and I told wheel. him about how they literally bored and Giant built, fuselage, uh, built yeah. an almost like a Ferris wheel contraption, and it, the, the, it would be spinning, so he'd be running in place like as if dude, he was in a, on dude, a treadmill. Dude, this movie could have come out in two – I think it could have come out this year, and I would have bought it. And I, because because yeah. like the lighthouse came out in 2019, I'm like they're going for a 40s feel. If that came out this year, I'm like they're going for like a 60s sci-fi feel. Oh, yeah. Like I I truly believe the effects are better than CGI now. No, Absolutely. for sure. <laughs> I want to talk about how they did the effects in a second. I just think I think it might I think it's the best science fiction movie of all time. I I, I full I, stop. I, I'm wondering how much George how much inspiration George Lucas must have gotten all from 2001. I mean like literally it must the, have the, quite the literally been Star Destroyer. The, the, yeah. the literal hangar uh, in 2001 is. Copy yeah, paste the same star, one as I mean, Star Wars. A yeah. lot of, but George Lucas too. He he kind of it's, it's the wrong word to use when I'm trying to prove he didn't rip him off. I would say he did a space odyssey, a space he opera. He he did yeah. like Flash Gordon. He, yeah. he he used a lot of stuff from Kurosawa films and westerns, uh. and he just set it in space. But in terms of the aesthetic, yeah, he definitely ripped off Kubrick. Yeah, but I would say it's just aesthetic. I mean, there's some. I, I think Nolan's Interstellar was like a direct rip off almost of 2001. Now having seen it, but. How I do, do like he, Interstellar though. I, I love, love it too. I, I, I love Interstellar. <laughs> I, like I think the mu- I love the music. It's in that got movie, its problems, but it's a it's how an did amazing how movie. did he was that all miniature models yes. and things of that mm-hmm. nature? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming because it yeah, was it was so well done, dude. But like, the sets alone, like um, and I can't remember the amount of lights, but the what they call the it's the alien alien zoo scene where he's at the bed. Mm-hmm. The amount of lights they had under the floor, they yeah. said actually got. It would get hot. It was lit from underneath. Yeah. And we were talking something that was stuck. We watched that scene a few times yesterday was how heavy and dense the monolith looked. That big I mean, object. I mean, it, it, it's it's that something. That scene is just amazing. I mean, to watch. It's, it's incredible. It's and my favorite th- Kubrick th- th- scene. Throughout the sense of the movie, even from the beginning of the Dawn of Man sequence, I think it means something to be able to give this monolith exp- expressionless thing behavior. <laughs> and. And like like a presence that all it literally does is just sit there. And but it uh, drives. It, 
it not only drives the narrative, it drives the idea of time moving, right. which is crazy. Right, and and yeah. it, it, so the, obviously there's many different theories as to what the monolith is, what the monolith means. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. We, we had some absolutely. theories yesterday. Uh, uh, one of my, Oh, I love 2001. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of my first impressions whenever I saw 2001 was that the monolith was not any form of God that we know of or is in any religion, but the the object that <clears throat> created like the idea of God that gave creatures, apes, their consciousness yeah. and, and an idea that if there was a god, the monolith is the god, and basically. Well, and every, time so you many s- every time you see the monolith in the movie, which I think is... Three times. Three times. Four times, technically. What's the fourth time? In the room. The well, third time. So the, the third, third time is when you see it going through space oh. and it lines up with the planet. You see it interacting with other beings three times. Yes. 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 But every time you see it, you make a leap in not just time, but evolutionary um, history. Evolutionary history. So the apes see it, and then they he does the famous match cut of the. Bone well, we talked about that yesterday, satellite. from like the the Homo sapiens to the human beings interacting with it, and they were like on their next step, like we are going interstellar now, and yeah. then. That thing at the end, I was like, bro, that's not a baby. Babies <laughs> don't look like that. Yeah. The it, Star now, it looks like the actor who plays Dave. Yeah. But I'm like, maybe that's an, a stylized choice. Do you think it was a stylized choice to make that baby have such a large head and have the same eyes as the actor, and they were just going for it to be a baby? Or it's like, this is the next evolution. All right, of... get the, get the tinfoil hats out. Okay. <laughs> have, you, have you heard the theory that, that that the star child baby is Alex from A Clockwork Orange? Yes. What? Have you yes. heard that one? Yes. I have not. Yeah. Uh, because the in the last shot of 2001 is the baby looking into the camera, right? And the first shot, oh my god, of, two, of Clockwork Orange is Alex looking into the I camera, love that. and the idea that, and so this is how they bridge this argument. The idea is at the end of 2001, he's looking directly at the audience, saying like, "Well, what are you going to do to make you know life better?" Essentially, you have all this violence because you think that's what he's actually, saying. Actually, because actually, 2001 is a violent movie. It's mm-hmm. all about violence. Mm-hmm. But it's very subtle how you see it. Like, yeah. Hal is literally just killing them. And yeah. there's that death scene. And which why is did he do that? Cra- why did Hal kill them? I mean, he did it to save the mission so that they could get to. Yeah, okay. So. We're, we're going to have a whole discussion <laughs> about Hal. Don't worry. Okay. So I can't um, do that, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> the idea is then 2001 is saying, you haven't evolved. Like, we're now more violent than ever after the 60s. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what Alex is kind of depicting. Uh, his ultra- that's the theory. That's so well, that's fascinating. The theory. Another thing that someone connects is that Kubrick was introduced to the book A Clockwork Orange while he was working on 2001. Yes. One of the yeah. people who worked on it with him showed him and pressed him the yeah. novel. Mm. Uh, so I mean, hey, which I don't like the book as well. It's an idea. You don't like Clockwork Orange? I love it. It's 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 it's, it's almost unreadable to me. Not just because of the NADSAT language it's in. That's why it's unreadable for me. But (laughs) but it's it's just um, it's like Dr. Seuss on acid, dude. I'd seen the movie first, and I just simply didn't like it as much. And and all the ideas. Whenever you say Clockwork Orange to anyone, and they're going to come up with the eye, the eye makeup, the hats. That's all Kubrick. That's not in the book. None of that's in the book. So what you think of. When you think of Clockwork Orange, the imagery is Kubrick. Like that's right. Stuff, I think it? of this. Right. Like yeah, I, I think and that's of that Kubrick whole, too, that conditioning scene. In the book, he just like sits in a room and they, right. they don't peel his eyes back and like that's all. Kubrick. Anyway, made, that movie inspired me a lot so, in terms of that. Movie is a, another interesting thing about 2001 that we touched on earlier was how it is one of his films that isn't necessarily directed from an adaptation. Right. Although you could yeah. argue that it is because, as we said. If they were, if, they were if, like working on it if, together. Am I mistaken that 
2001 is the only script Kubrick received outside help and partnership on? No, because um, is it Diane Johnson helped with The Shining. And oh. she, was a, she was a she taught I think at UC Berkeley, I think. But she was a uh, horror author. Oh, okay. And so um, he brought her in and she helped. So there's okay. a lot of like the stuff with there's a lot of Edgar Allan Poe references. There's a lot uh-huh. of Freudian stuff. She mm-hmm. helped kind of inject that in. Okay. Um, and so, so, but part of 2001 was also based off of Arthur C. Clarke's previous yes. work, The yeah. Sentinel, the and Sentinel. other short short stories that he made. So there definitely was foundations for 2001, yeah. but you really can't directly say that it was based on an adaptation. No. Um, and another thing I researched is obviously 2001 is one of the most psychedelic movies of all time. It's so psychedelic. I mean, I mean, uh, well, do you want to talk about how people thought about it? How? What do you mean? Well, when it came out. Um, there's a lot of you can look it up. There's a, there's a lot of articles from the time saying I think we read one in class. The critics hated it. Oh there yeah, was, there was 2001. People leave, yeah, there was people leaving. Uh, people weren't sitting through it. And Kubrick thought like that that was it. Uh, my right. career's over. It got popular because of the counterculture. 68. So it's kind of a product of its time mm. where people would drop acid and go see it, and then they started marketing it as the greatest trip of whatever. And that's yeah. how it really got. But the stuffy like critics would go in and watch it and go, this is unwatchable. That's so shocking to me. Yeah, there's no dialogue. There's no... Most of his movies coming out, critics didn't like it. They did not like The Shining. They didn't like... What's really interesting to me is that whenever I saw 2001 for the first time, I was like, okay... Even if he he he, he Kubrick, he wasn't on psychedelics while he wa- made the movie. He wouldn't be that irresponsible. But he, there's a level of consciousness to this movie. I think movie he was aware that that you have to have experienced something like psychedelics to garner yeah. that knowledge. I don't know if he but, did drugs. But, but I, I have an article up here right now that during his successful lifetime, Stanley. Oh, by the way, it's by uh, Overmind.com. Nice. <laughs> D- dur- during his successful <laughs> lifetime, yeah. S- Stanley Kubrick actually addressed the question of whether he used LSD or other drugs to expand his mind to enhance his works. To this, he blatantly said no, and had one of the best reasons as well. In his answer to the interviewer, he described vividly that it is crucial for an artist to have a oneness and sense of being with their subconscious and their cre- personal creative outlet that they possess. He continued to say that he felt... <laughs> Sounds like he did acid. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, felt, he felt as though the individuals who knew how to use these enhancement drugs had a difficult time distinguishing what was truly beautiful versus what was stimulating. Interesting. That's pure Kubrick response. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, I don't know, Kubrick, maybe you should try it. Yeah. <laughs> You'd really like My it. response would be like, uh, no. All yeah. right, moving on. My, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the guy definitely uh, – I, I thought that, inter- that statement of having a oneness and sense of being with their subconscious was really interesting because that's basically what LSD and acid are supposed that's to do. That's what I'm saying. That's that, why like, it's like, so It's weird. basically bridge the gap between your conscious and subconscious. That's quite literally what they do. So for him yeah. to feel that he has that connection with his subconscious without having done these Kubrick's drugs a woke motherfucker, man. is very, he was, very he interesting. He slept like two hours a day. I mean, that's just, <laughs> but he was an extremely smart Literally man. Woke. Like, I mean, I mean, he must have been like someone who, to be that insightful, to be that mindful. Like, usually it takes a lot of meditation, and sometimes people do need things like drugs to open their mind up and to he, that. But maybe he didn't, you know. He read, like I said, he read everything. And they said when, after he died, they went into his office, and it was just just piles of books and articles, stuff he just never he would yeah. get to, and then he would because he was always looking, what's the next script? What's the next? Which he got burned with a couple of them. Which he was always later, making the next project. Yeah, yeah. right. With Napoleon and he got burned. Um, 
Well, really, Full Metal Jacket. Eyes Wide Shut kind of got. I feel like it got burned. We'll get to production. We'll get to that. I love Eyes Wide Shut, but so so in order to to wrap up uh, 2001 real quick, I thought. I mean, in my opinion, the most interesting character in the movie is How. He's the most human. He's the most human, and. He was asking me why he how does the stuff he does. Well, yeah, I was confused a bit by Hal's motivations. What what my personal answer was was that Hal had basically along his experience started to develop a consciousness and a sense of being beyond what he actually was. And whenever he started to show signs of fault, likely due to his focus on that part of his nature, he felt as if there was the conspiracy to shut him down, which there factually was, that he read the lips of. By the way, that's my favorite scene from the movie where Hal is reading the lips of. I think that's some of the most brilliant editing. and and Dude, that is one of the most brilliant moments in film I've ever seen, where it goes silent, we just have the fisheye lens, and it goes... has anyone, so has anyone obviously we know what it is they're talking about but has anyone ever been able to translate word for word what it actually I, I is that they're know. saying is there I'm a sure pub- someone has is there a script published uh oh well of course there's a script yeah. published but i would i would imagine that just inaudible as well. just say just shows what how is doing during that yeah. that goes back to that whole scene about communication that runs through the hole where you can't hear them talking about how understands what right. they're saying and right my favorite scene that's a great one as well but one of my favorite scenes is the death of Hal whenever he goes it's to it's so sad right I mean it, it is Wild. sad it's but, scary. But, but at the same time you, you get confliction where uh-huh. where you are sad for Hal but you're totally understanding of why Dave needs to do this yeah. I wasn't and, conflicted at all I was like shut that fucking thing down <laughs> right. it scared and, and, me and I mean like it, the way that scene is shot there's no sound besides the oh, breathing yeah. which is, is so which, long. which is coming from Dave the breathing is coming yeah. from Dave which is also reminiscent of the last scene whenever you reach the same breathing test test the monolith, Mm. but also because you hear it without always seeing Dave, it's almost also giving a breath to how as well. Yeah. Where he scored the movie with breathing. Right. Really. And, and, just, just the singing of Daisy while he's dying. Oh, that's and, uh, when I was like, kill and, that and fucker. His, 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 <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's like, Dave, I can feel yeah. lost. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing right? myself. And, right. And uh, I mean, it's just such a brilliant movie that on scene so is many awesome. different aspects. This, my favorite, I think, is the scene where it's right after that and you see Jupiter where the monolith is floating. That uh, part is an eerie scene. Oh, like, yeah. Jupiter is glowing. I don't know that, how to describe that scene. That thing is just floating around. Yeah. Like, that's a creepy then, scene. Then it lines itself uh-huh. up, and it's just like, what the like that's it, yeah. Whenever it does that, whenever it lines itself up with the planet. Or it looks like a I, I get, I, I get an, yeah, yeah, it does. I, yeah. Get, I get an indication that, like, this thing is an orchestrator of some kinds. Yeah. Where, where yeah. Th- like, th- th- there's, he's pulling the strings not just of humanity, but perhaps the universe as a whole. Uh, or at least his responsible part of the universe. You never know if there's multiple. Yeah, like it could be, out in- there. it could be intelligent. Yeah, uh, fully. Uh, I have seen some stuff about how actually each monolith is is a different monolith, not the same monolith, and that there are multiple mo- monoliths out there that are all a part of the same being. Which is part, which is part of what explains why this, why the monolith yeah. would be under the moon. Well, that's the like, Stonehenge. Under, under the that's moon. the Stonehenge theory that they all were once in different pieces. They're that, very, you know it's, what it's, I mean? it's all, it's all one you being, but there's Stonehenge? different monolithic what? Uh, that's physicals. What was? That's like the Stonehenge theory about how like each piece was like this godly object when, oh, when brought yeah, together. Yeah. They like lost, it lost its power individually, but like. The way I was watching the movie was I thought at first that it's the movie was starting off on the moon like millions of years ago and that the <laughs> psych eight, the homo the, well the, or the, no like that the homo sapiens were just going to they buried the object cuz when they discovered it buried on the moon I'm like oh like 
someone realized this thing is not to be tampered with and they tried to hide it like they buried it like that was my first yeah. before i saw it going ape shit and traveling through the interdimensional space mm. i that's what my theory was and i also had the theory that it was responsible for elevating men like yeah. when when spe- like species was ready and worthy it would present itself and like with a touch of the object they would be enlightened because every you, time you, we you, see the character reach out and touch it you, you could also view it as not them being worthy but being completely unworthy and needing connection that's a new beginning well it was like they start because right after the the homo sapiens touched it they started using tools and then av- and then like the the human beings already farly progressed you know in terms of their notice that they but they use the tools for violence which is mm-hmm. again you got that he's doing that motif again of violence and man and violence yeah and, and every time you see it, there's some aspect of violence. So there's the scene where the tools, and then they use it to beat the other ones. Right. Well, he bashes at that and, and the dead skeleton. Th- yeah, and when yeah. he throws the bone, it turns into the uh, satellite that drops bombs. I, 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 th- I think that's oh, part yeah. of what plays I, into why whenever they discover hmm. the monolith on the moon and he goes to touch it, it starts that ringing uh-huh. noise, like, don't touch me, get the fuck what away was from that, me. Bro? I, I think that's part <laughs> of it's. It knew that whenever it first gave that consciousness to the ape, that again, as you were saying, its first usage of that knowledge was violence. Mm-hmm. And so I think the monolith was at a mindset where if I allow you to touch me again, what further damage can be done? But why what, care? What, 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 what am I giving to you by right. allowing you to touch me and stuff like that to the point where he doesn't want them to touch me? And the, the rest the of the movie's about killing, right? Right. Hal's trying yeah. to kill them. He kills Hal. Why did you think Hal killed the other astronauts? Because like, this is what I was confused about. I didn't know because this the, again in the in the time frame of the '60s where computers could scare the living shit out of people, it was causing so many schizophrenics to go awire. Just thinking, sitting in the same room as an IBM would freak people out. Yeah. So having this computer go online quite literally and become sentient and self-aware, and then just rant, I'm like, is it is it dramatic effect for him to just start killing people? Because it was scary. The scene where the pod opens up and sends. Uh, Fred or whatever his oh, name yeah, is yeah, in yeah. space, and then he, silent. Then he <laughs> killed the people in the pods. I'm like, but why are you doing that? Like, you're in control of the ship. You can decide where we go. You don't have to kill anyone. <laughs> That's so a I didn't, great I, sequence I, I didn't, too. I didn't, I well, didn't get because it. because the humans, as Dave shows, is capable shut of, of shutting him down. Yeah. And he just because like he could have woke up the people though and been like, yo, they're gone. Like I don't know what happened. Like you know, I don't know what happened. Like it's up to you now. Like I, but I I do think it's just. Because I, I think there's a dramatic effect in having him make these decisions. And, like, what, what he kept saying the mission was important. I'm like, does uh-huh. Hal want to go to Jupiter? Does he not want to go to Jupiter? Well, he wants him, he, the whole point, because then, then they have the – once he kills Hal, that um, yeah, recording that. kicks on, and he starts talking and giving him ideas because they knew the monolith thing was out there because he was one of the scientists that touched it. Who, so, the guy in the video? Yeah, he's the one that touches it, and it's so he knew then it was out there and sent them there. Did, was it, that video wasn't that was triggered by coincidence, or was it triggered by death? Was it a last act of Hal saying, I like, think it was watch the last this? Act, yeah, yeah, if I remember right. Because that was kind of, it did then come he on. Gets, I mean, Dave gets screwed because he gets stuck in this room for the rest of his life. And the thing is, <laughs> now, I thought that was it, it, very it, it, angelic. It is, it is interesting to note. How, the, the way that that she, scene progresses and the way oh. that it flows is flawless. Brilliant. But it's also mystifying in the sense that is he is is this fast forwarding of time? Is this happening for us, the viewer, or is this constantly switching the actual perspective yeah. of Dave? Yeah. Well, every time is, we get a new shot, it's for, it's a new perspective. And he's so, looking right. at himself, but then it switches and he's not there. He's well, not it's, there it's, anymore. It's right. not shot. It, he's used. So Kubrick's using the direct classic motif of shot reverse shot. Right. However. He's really honing in on perspective there because we're uh-huh. only dealing with one person. So it's perspective reverse perspective. We have him in the pod, seeing himself outside, outside the pod. It. Now the pod is gone. He wanders, then he sees himself right. eating, 
And I'm yeah, you had the theory of reincarnation yeah. or of like perhaps purgatory and right. like we we don't I don't know. There's a it, lot it, written it, on that uh, thing. Th- that whole scene is based on perspective, not just from what he's experiencing, what we're experiencing as an audience, but the monolith perspective at the end of that scene yeah. where it fl- it flips yeah. to what the, it shows him on the bed, what he sees the monolith, flips to the, the monolith, the what the monolith is seeing and the monolith is seeing a baby. Exactly. Uh-huh. And why would he go back so, to being a baby after being an old man too? It's like it's like the cycle continuing and it is definitely without a doubt the same actor because it's like it's molded after yeah, his face. Yeah, they molded it after p- his p- face, p- I think. Part of what I think <sighs> is that you you also wonder like why did he pick Dave out of all humans? Like, like, like what, yeah. what's so special about Dave? And I, th- and I think it's part of what he experiences uh, with Hal. And I think it's part of what th- the decision to allow Dave to come through that wormhole. Yeah. Beca- because whenever, whenever he's done through that wormhole, I mean, he's shaken up to hell and back. You know what I mean? Like he, oh, like he can never live a normal life after experiencing something like that. So basically I think the process of the wormhole is basically the process of choosing Dave to be the next uh, individual of the next step of evolution. Yeah, and there's yes, and there's some stuff written. I forget where I read it, but um, <coughs> the Excuse choice me. and it, he loves that early modern classical motif, like the room oh. is decked out as if it's very lit. Right, it's the very ju- lit. Yeah. The, the juxtaposition yep. of that room being lit from the floor right. like a sci-fi, but then very Victorian. And is... it's almost like they say. If there's some people who say it's like an alien like zoo where they're watching him and you hear right. voices when he's in there and it's uh-huh. almost they design the room but then there's people that argue that oh, kubrick was saying so cool. at that point in the enlightenment in our history that was a point where humanity could have taken a path but we went the opposite direction mm. and mm. ended up where we were in the cold war and all that's that. really interesting and that even connects to barry Lyndon and how when barry Lyndon feels so modern but it's set in this early modern novel mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's vietnam stuff in it when you get into it and it's all very much but it's almost like he's saying in that moment during the enlightenment you had the ability to evolve into this greater but instead you went an opposite route and you're still doing wars you're still doing world wars you're still doing holocaust you're still, you're still, still having the these guys right and the 20th century is just full of human atrocities that should have been done away with we're still sacrificing people to fake gods and stuff right like that. yeah so it's almost like that's that really point, interesting i like that yeah. i love the zoo theory you just made me like sit back and just go holy the shit zoo. <laughs> well because for me like the noises were like I got a very angelic vibe yeah. to it. There's a lot of songs, you like know, a higher like being Cream's sort of White sort of Room. <laughs> There's a lot of people who, when they die, they say they, they saw, like, a glass room. There's a lot of spiritual lore through many religions and folk tales about that type of place, uh, you know, like a purgatory type of place. So I, the noises I was hearing, I'm like, maybe this is just, like, his life flashing before his eyes, yeah. and he's hearing that, and it's and just... To, to me, I mean, I think it does, I, literally. <laughs> to, to, to me, that that's a, that's a key part that attributes to my uh, belief that the monolith is an unknown god. It's god. Un- unknown orchestrator, not necessarily the creator of life right. itself, but an understanding of life and existence. It has a presence. That that has been already developed for ages and ages yeah. and ages past humanity well, it's a cycle. Given the we see that it's a cycle in a whole movie too i well, mean, I mean it starts like, like one it place it ends already. up at the same yeah it, it just maybe like, like this has happened several times over like that's another thing like the echoing voices i'm like this is just another instance of this happening and like, that's even him reaching out with his finger is very uh-huh. that hand, shot hand, is so hand powerful God, all that kind of yeah. stuff like we i thought of the painting yesterday when i walked because he's like what do you think is going on there when he's reaching out like, because he knows he can't touch him. Because again, the first instinct of every character that interacts with it is to touch it, right. which is the, which is crazy to me. It's and like, 
I thought of Adam touching God, that yeah. very fam- famous painting, and yeah. like that's what it kind of reminded Sistine me Chapel. of, like where they own, like they, he can't, they're not quite touching, right? Um, but I'm, I don't know, like was he, was he trying, like like almost like give me salvation, like because it's he's on his deathbed, and he's like, ple- it looks like he was like pleading almost, like give me this salvation, give me enlightenment, w- w- or, like whatever you've brought me here for, yeah. like let's do it, or maybe that's not it at all, maybe he can't even see the monolith, but we can as the audience. I just think it's fascinating that this one scene. Can warrant such a discussion <laughs> yeah. because it, I mean, there's philosophical discussions, there's filmmaking discussions, oh, there's books written on it. I just, I, what do you, did, have you given your personal take <laughs> on what you think it is? Um, I, I kind of, I think it's a, I think what he's saying in that whole movie, and again, I can't pare down one thing, but it's a lot, it's a very humanistic movie for such a film that's very distant. It feels distant, like the characters mm. are kind of. You're not really connected They're with They're nuclear. I mean, you yeah, you don't know, not except personable. for Hal. Hal is the only one that you're Which like. Which is so ironic. Yeah, that yeah. you think, oh, I know what he's doing. Even Dave, you're kind of, I mean, he's he's fine. He's, he's Dave. Right, he's, he's the Dave. nuclear <laughs> man. Well, it's like, that's what the characters we see in the movie. It's like right. very nuclear, painted, magazine cover people. And it's such, but it's what, the ideas that he's dealing with are so epic and on such a grand scale that you have to step back and say, well, he's dealing with themes of evolution, which in the 60s was still, Controversial. Um, the what? Let, let me pause real quick. Oh. I don't know. I don't know if this means we're still recording, because usually it, I, I think it does because the red light's still on. Yeah. But I just want to be safe. Okay. I just want because it. it says something's canceled. Sorry to interrupt you guys again. No but yeah, continue. Allison, but then, Allison, make sure to give your thoughts on it. Yeah. Well, well <clears> I mean, <throat> excuse me. When you were telling me about him coming on, and then I asked you, like, I think it was a couple weeks ago before today what his thoughts were on the conspiracies with that movie. And you're like, he refuses to talk about them in class. I wanted, I just wanted to know what, what your what opinions were. That um, Stanley Kubrick um, helped fake the moon landing. Well, dude, he made... He, and his, not just that, there's like so many... His footage of that Conspiracy theories that like come out of that, but that's like the main one, that he helped fake the moon landing. A lot of it's what, the front projection? Yeah. Because mm. that was, he developed that. I mean, it, he, they'd used it for, but his front projection, they argue the moon landing is front projected so yeah. that was one uh, when would he a, have had time to even do the moon landing so here's my thing on the <laughs> he's moon making landing. movies there, i've seen stuff and there was one picture i saw and it was him walking with some executives and they said look it's nasa it's not right next to him is arthur c clark so it's like <laughs> you know, it's probably the two producers he was working right with. yeah um i there's so many problems with the moon landing videos and that's all on, the that's flaws on the government yeah Kubrick wouldn't, Kubrick have, done wouldn't it. have done it. The, 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 the <laughs> wave true. flagging, that absolutely fucking not. Uh, Kubrick camera, wouldn't have that's that the happen. best argument for him not being right. having done when it. Right, the, when the um, lunar module takes off and the camera pans up, Kubrick wouldn't have done that. Like, yeah. Or maybe he would have said, you know, well, I got to make this look kind of crappy. Well, he would have went. I think he could have went for hyper realism there, but like, I don't know. Like, he because <laughs> he, he did because we've seen him do space and he did, he's done the best f- space footage I think ever, like ever. And, I, and the, the well, the moon landing thing is not the best space footage. Well, no, uh, no. Exactly. If, if he wanted to perfect it like he could have, it it would have looked a lot better than the moon landing footage we do have. But there's yeah. definitely a self awareness to it, like in like you know in that room two thirty. Um, what's oh, the documentary two thirty seven? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like yeah. you know those guys. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. But like, and, and then you know Danny's <laughs> shirt in The watch. Shining. Yeah. Like, that's Kubrick just poking fun at it. I'm guessing that's, he knew about it at that point. Well, that's like Paul McCartney wearing no shoes and yes, saying I am dead, dead and things like that. Yeah. So like, I think that's just Kubrick having fun with that. I would imagine because it's like, why would you directly poke fun at things? like that? And why that? would you make an entire movie and then go, I'm just hiding details about the 
the moon landing. Does, yeah. does Kubrick seem like the kind of guy to do a government contract to, to, to fake a moon landing? I don't know. It doesn't he would, very he would seem have, He wouldn't like have kept it, it secret. Also. I, I don't know. It, it, it's, all, it's all only understandable because of how much of a recluse and hideaway the it guy is. If, if, if he was as public a director as Tarantino or Scorsese, a We'd theory like that off. would probably never see the no, light of day. No. It speaks a lot to him. I mean, that he's such a he's a monolith of himself, honestly. Just, I, he's such a mystery. Maybe you guys could tell me because I haven't. The moon landing stuff, I remember in high school they started, not with Kubrick, but they started talking about faking the moon landing. And it was right when the internet was getting where everyone was on the internet. And so immediately, yeah, yeah conspiracy theories. Um, but I remember even then hearing some of them, and I was kind of like, I don't. I get the main argument of we had to beat Russia and all of that. I get the fake moon landing argument. I don't believe it was Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah, no. I just think, like, some of the things with, like, the moon landing, like, conspiracies are, I think it's crazy how far advanced we are with technology and NASA claims we can never watch those videos. We don't have it anymore. Everything's destroyed. <laughs> we don't have. We don't even have the things that could play back those videos mm. because well, it's all destroyed. Well, that's bullshit. It's just shit like that. That's like okay. We've been to the fucking moon. But not I even that. But like, look one of it. my favorite like moon landing, <laughs> like one of my favorite like moon landing conspiracies is the video is like it is real. But when people say, "Well, why is the flag moving like that?" Blah blah blah. And then, like, mm. NASA comes up with whatever bullshit they come up with. But <laughs> my, my favorite, but the, the back, but the backing behind that are people People say space and the atmosphere up there isn't what the government thought it was. So now they're too afraid to admit they were wrong. And so they're just going to cover up the shit that does show on the tapes with other theories that they already have. Because they're too afraid to admit they were wrong about what the atmosphere is like up there. They're too afraid just the, to admit that the, they were wrong. I don't know. The, the strongest case for NASA for that they actually did do the moon landing is that you factually see Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin getting in a plane, getting shot into space. You factually see them coming back people from people watched Earth. it happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can go outside right now with a telescope and look at his fucking footprints on the moon. Yeah, <laughs> like that, that, his, that's his, the best proof that, to me. Don't they have that plate up there? You can shoot a laser and hit. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's how they get the distance. We've been to the moon. We've walked on the moon. It's just the there's nature no point of that by now. They stopped going there because people, a people lost interest, and the there's U.S. No economy point. tanked after we, Vietnam. I mean, we were sinking so much money into Vietnam, right? And I think a lot of the moon. If you really want to get into conspiracy, you could argue in '69 when they went to the moon. That's when we started ramping up. Like that was one of the worst years. I think is '67 between '67 and '69 was the worst we're years spending. of Vietnam. No, of like yeah. death. 69 was for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so you were seeing all that stuff on the TV. And so yeah. a good, I mean, really, it makes sense. You would then go, let's distract. Oh, we went Vietnam. to the moon and everyone was gay yeah. America well, it's again. it's a space whereas, race thing completely, honestly. Right. That's, that's why I think it, people believe that it could be faked because of the pressure to have a win. We were losing right. the space that's, race. Yeah. I buy that, but the Kubrick, uh, like it the wasn't Room 237 Kubrick. stuff, yeah. it's fun to watch. It's so fun to watch, but like, because I do think they point there out a lot good, of fun things. There are some good analyses in that, though. Yeah, there's a lot of good theorizing. Yeah. And you know the guy who did it? I forget I forget his name right now. He directed Toy Story 3. Uh, Lee Unkridge, I think, is the guy. I love Toy Story 3. Yeah, Lee Unkridge. <laughs> one of the best Toy Stories. <laughs> He's one of the best Toy Stories. <laughs> He's the one. Yeah, it, it's Lee Unkridge. The name just came to me. He's a director and writer of a few Pixar movies. Um, Why is the kid in the background in that one? You know the interview? Where the guy's talking, his kid comes in and starts no. babbling. Oh, oh my yeah. god! Yeah, I do remember that Come actually. On. He's like, I opened my box of 2001, and his kid is like babbling in the background. Like, Come <laughs> on! I don't know, but 
anyway. 2001 again i do to close it out because i think it deserves all the time we gave it i think it is without and i just and this is fresh i don't usually give fresh ratings to things it's easily a masterpiece and it's a 10 out of 10 but like that doesn't matter it transcends film and ratings i just think it's yeah. the greatest most ultimate and pinnacle version of what a science fiction movie mm-hmm. or, I, or even experience should be I, I think it's one of those things that truly emboldens what it calls itself an odyssey i mean it is the true encapsulation of that word yes. and everything that that means in the truest sense I've i mean kubrick he like was it. he was obsessed his entire career with changing the form he always said he wanted to change how movies and that i think that was the one you could point to and say yeah, you changed it. Science fiction I mean, changed after this. Movies it, changed. You, after you changed that. enough to the point where still no one's been able to replicate anything no. close since. Hey, even no. Interstellar, where they try, it's like it's good, but it's it's not. Interst- right. and it's just, that's not even necessarily Interstellar's fault. No, it's just it's like not, how no. can you compete with you the thing can. that did it first? You just it's it's really because like it didn't just do it first. No. It did it really damn well. Like yeah, right. most things that do it first usually are just the the tr- the you know the, the, the stepping stones. Yeah. Stuff. So. Yeah. so yeah. Speaking of controversy and conspiracy, <laughs> let's move into just a my very, mind. very <laughs> personal favorite film of mine, not just for Kubik, but Is this for one all of your film, favorite? You a loved Clockwork it Orange. Dude, you know what? He I, watched it like know, 17 I, I, times. I, I, I honestly have to apologize to you <laughs> because I turned in a paper about Clockwork that was so shitty. <laughs> <laughs> because I literally was too focused, like watching the movie. Then, like, like I, I don't even know how to explain it. I turned in such a shitty paper about about a Clockwork Orange, uh, just talking about Alex. When we got to it, Clockwork, I could tell from a teacher's perspective that's when your light bulb like went off. And every day in class, he's like, "Did you see this part? Did you see?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I did see that." Part. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I did see that. And I could tell he was like blown away with Clockwork Orange, and I was like, "Yeah, it's yeah." I, it, it's it's the movie I that it's, movie. it's the movie that not only made me fall, fall in love with Kubrick, but maybe look at film. You say that all the time. Like, I love hearing yeah, you say I that. I just have, like whenever I watch <laughs> I it, I have like such a big moral debate with myself. Yes. Because I mean, well, the first time I saw it, I was like 15, so I was so creeped out Christ. and like so like messed up that I didn't understand what I was seeing at the time, but like. I've watched it so many times, but it's always – I feel bad for either A, not liking it because what it's about, or B, liking it and then being like, shit, I shouldn't like a movie like this because I of what it's it. about. So it's like I just have like such a <laughs> big moral debate of – Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. I love it. I, I, ironically for me, the most controversial well-known thing about A Clockwork Orange is its first half, the rape, the, the yeah, murder, the right. violence. Yeah. But yeah. it's the second half of Clockwork Orange that makes the movie what it is yeah, to me. Yeah, me too, yeah. man. Um, just, I mean, the end that it, scene where they're beating him in the trough. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and and the the vidying, the ultra-violence, and uh, his, his, his <laughs> trying to... His, you can still see how the therapy isn't working. Uh-huh. He's playing it off like it's working. But he still wants to go back out and just be old classic Alex, and then Dude, yeah. out of nowhere, it actually does start working, and like <laughs> to, to the point to the point where he still doesn't want to do it, but the he night. gets physically sick at the thought of it. And I mean, it's just it's masterful, and the ending is probably my favorite ending cherry on top of a movie ever. It is, it's my it favorite is. character. Oh, I, I gave. It, I was cured all right. <laughs> I know, to me, that's the thing. I. I'm very, I'm very serious, Dustin. I'm a very serious list taker. I take this very seriously, <laughs> right? You should yeah. see so, his list. So I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of lists, and one of them is my top ten favorite character arcs of all time in cinema history. And Cla- Alex is on there because I think I like the reversion. Like he go, yeah. he, he goes to a point and then comes right back he, where he started. He starts at point A. And, travels to point Z, B through, B <laughs> yeah. through Z, and then comes right back. He to develops, point a. but regresses yeah I, and i yeah. love that because I, I think it's one of the, i think it's one of the best 
character studies ever done for a, a character. I mean, not just character. I would say humanity. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's a Kubrick thing, and especially. I think that's, but so here's my thing with Clockwork, and here's where. So I came to Kubrick films relatively late in my life. So. I saw The Shining when I was in high school. Didn't get it. I was like, I did, that wasn't scary. I don't know what that was that I just watched. Didn't watch it. I saw Clockwork when I was an undergrad, and my friend says, oh, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. You got to watch this. And I'm like, yeah. all right. And we heard, you know, it's violent. There's rape and all this stuff. So you're sitting there watching it, and I, I was like, I don't – I get I watched half of it and shut it off. I said, like, I don't get it. It wasn't until I was probably close to 30 – that I forget what it was, but I ended up rewatching The Shining, which was my and I for whatever mm. reason it clicked, and I was like, "This is a genius film." And so mm. then I went and Clockwork was the second one, and I sat and watched it, and I was I still was on the fence where I'm like, I don't know. Was I don't, it tone? You think that was a bit off? Yeah, I don't for know you? if it. I don't think I was getting it. Mm-hmm. And it's like Kubrick is one of those directors where he didn't he he didn't take his audience's intelligence for granted. Like, he throwed it at you, he threw it at you, and he said... He respected the audience. Yeah, he said, here's what it is. And I think sometimes it takes a development in your life to go, oh, I get it. It's kind of like Dark Side of the Moon. I didn't Mm -hmm. get Dark Side of the Moon the first time I heard it. Then I got older and went, oh, I get what they're saying there. Uh, (laughs) I'm getting old, I'm going to die. That's what you're telling me. um, I don't know. I almost turned off Clockwork Orange the first time I saw it, too, like 30 minutes into it. Yeah, like, the first half is cool. And that's mm. from a one of that icky, I mean, the, that the, icky phase. The, the, yeah. the opening <laughs> shot is iconic as all oh hell. My God, and the way so Alex's good. character, and we can get into this one, because I, I reference Joker later with uh, <laughs> Clockwork Orange that no one picked up on. I pick on, he, I think Heath Ledger. Is oh, like, yeah. yeah. Like, I, 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 I Alex's totally character, you. and they always say how Kubrick's characters aren't likable and they're distant, but Alex is so charismatic and so, uh-huh. like, singing in the rain while you're raping someone, and you want to go. Improv, by the uh, way. Yeah, and then you go. But yeah, I, I was about to say. But. He's funny, and then it's uh, I shouldn't be liking. But him. I love that yeah. scene. That's what's no. But I think that's the best thing a director can do is make me have cognitive dissonance in a film. Like right. you know what I mean? Like right. truly, especially about a raw subject. It's not something that's just like exaggerated. Like I'm seeing some warfare and it's action packed. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this is fucked up, but it's awesome to watch and it's beautifully shot. Like <laughs> no, these are people in a room just beating the shit out of somebody, and he's singing and he's awesome to watch. It's and a I want classical wa- music, like a right. ballet of fighting, like murdering people and the, the, yeah the, the, the twisting of his mind is so unique and the the charisma he has as a person makes him such a unique character that it's hard not to like him in a sense was that the script it, it, and not at all to that you're always you're always off put by the character yeah and it, like what you were saying with joker he malcolm mcdowell does like what joaquin phoenix does for me where you sympathize for the character you feel for the character yep. at certain points you like the character but the character keeps this distance from you of repulsiveness mm. and mentality that you just simply can't endure. Those are bad he, people. He pulls that rug out. And Joker did this for me where I said, I, I get where people are anxious about Joker because Joker really isn't that violent. Like, it's really saying, not. It's violent. It's violent. And I was expecting, you know. Some Me kind of, too. Some kind of kung fu movie. We talked right. about that. We, we we talked about I, when I walked out of the theater. I'm like, this isn't a critique, but I expected that movie to be like fucking. It's re- not. Revolting. There's like three incidents of actual violence. Right. Yeah. What it is is the violence is realistic, and you are connecting with Joaquin Phoenix like you do Alex. But then all of a sudden he shoots three people on a train, and you go, uh, not supposed to like that. But you root but for him. Yeah, to yeah. Do I was it. Saying, the whole time I was like, I, I'm rooting for You're the Joker the entire yeah. right. time. Like I want him. And and, to, like, and win, he's the protagonist. Yeah. For, for me, the point where he really lost me, where he lost my sympathy, Joaquin Phoenix's yeah. Joker, by the way, was when he kills Randall in his apartment, and he's like, okay, yeah. he's gone from the point of just killing, that's the point killing for self-defense. Like, yeah. 
and now he's killing the people who have done him yeah, wrong. But for modern audiences, that's that's stuff. For and I'm saying like general theater goers that went and saw Avengers Endgame the day before. Mm-hmm. That stuff's uncomfortable because you're not used to seeing it. You're not used to seeing a main yeah. character do that stuff. And that's why I think even then, Alex, it triggered people where they're saying, this is, I don't like it. He's raping. But then I kind of like likes it. it. So and they weren't we flashy should, about it. They were intimate right. about it. I, we that's another just say, thing. ban it. I think like his this. writing right. is very intimate, Kubrick. So, like, because a lot of the times, like I said, it would just be this exaggerated thing where it's like they cut or you know that someone was raped or the character is just a bad character. There's a lot yeah. of bad characters that I love to watch on screen. But when we intimately spend time with them and we witness every moment of it, it is kind of like, all right, I'm, I am feeling a glass half empty uh, here uh, about uh, it. Uh, yeah. One part for Clockwork that is kind of kind of makes Alex a bit of a sleaze bag. Where prior to this, I had kind of liked him, was where he goes to the video store with the cane mm. on his back, and he ta- <laughs> and he and he talks and he talks <laughs> and he talks to two girls. He's like, he's, yeah. like, he's like, you really like that uh, popsicle there? Whatever, whatever he says. But then it's like, shot in fast motion. Yeah, the, like, the threesome time lapse yeah. is so uh-huh. crazy. To William to me. Tell overture. That's when I first. It was, it was the first my... thing to ever do that, right? Because like that's kind of like a, a, a Hollywood like trope now is like doing fast paced action yeah, with yeah, that yeah, music yeah. in the background. Oh yeah, and well, it was the first thing to do that. I believe that's when I looked at my brother when we were watching it this past July, and I'm like, do we want to keep watching this? And like again, I'm like, and like now I was like, this is fucking awesome, but I'm like. This is is this weird for being weird or is this just like weird. like we were just trying to choose a movie to watch on like a Friday night I'm like I'm like what let's just put on John Wick or something but, but like <laughs> but violence like, <laughs> um, but it's so the thing he was doing with Clockwork was he blew the budget out on 2001 he went I forget how many millions of dollars over really <laughs> and the studio said whoa dude like your next movie you can't and he said I can make a low budget film. And so I think he did it for two or three million dollars or wow. something like that, and he shot it. And it's a Fuck. it's a low budget adjusted for inflation, I'm right? It's that. a low budget film when you watch it. But the way he used the camera, the angles, the lenses to that first half, you're completely in the lighting. Alex is, Alex is like drug stupor. Dude, the lighting. I think the right. production design. Like I, I'm shocked to hear that because to me, I think it's some of the most impressive production design. No, ever. it is. The shot of them in that cafe at the beginning, I'm just like, oh, this that's is one of the, so that's crazy. That's probably my favorite Kubrick opening. Really? Oh, it me too. still gives me chills. Me too. The and way it, he it, does that slow yeah, uh, reverse the, tracking, the, but then you the see narrating. the weird world he's in with the BDSM dolls. What, what, what's, and the, what's really cool is how, like, literally, like, whenever it moves away, like, you're, you at, at, at towards the end of that opening scene, you're very you're pretty far away from Alex, mm-hmm. but you still feel his presence. Like you, you're still looking at him, even though you can't meet his eyes. You're still looking at Alex. Right, it's yeah. that one point perspective. Right, maybe you've glanced around to look at the settings. Maybe you've noticed the nude models on yeah. the uh, mannequins on the side of the thing, but you're still focused on Alex. Has Malcolm ever talked about how? messed up that role made him or anything like that well actually well the thing for malcolm mcdowell was that after that he kind of somewhat typecasted himself he did some weird he did that like he did caligula, caligula and, and he, he kind of just typecasted himself for a short period as the anti-hero the yeah. guy who plays fucked up roles yeah and um that started with clockwork but what's also interesting about malcolm mcdowell and clockwork orange is that it is one of the very few examples of kubrick respecting and allowing the input of an actor of his to be brought to the film itself, mm-hmm. to where Kubrick isn't telling them what to do in, in its totality and has everything written on a paper form. It was fluid between Malcolm and, and Kubrick, and they both 
both decided on what the vision was for the character, how he'd be represented, the actions and everything about the character. And Clockwork was one of Kubrick's favorite movies his whole life. Absolutely. And he he was actually really hurt. And there's a scene in this um, in this book where Emilio, the driver, was asking him towards the end of his life. And I think he's filming Eyes Wide Shut. And he's asking about all the movies that Emilio just watched. And he said, and out of nowhere, Kubrick says, well, did you watch Clockwork Orange? And he was like, yeah. And, but Emilio said he was really hurt how people read the movie. Right. Like they, mm. they read it in the light that wasn't supposed to. They saw it and they went, it's violent. It's terrible. It's, it's encouraging this. Yeah. Which is literally the reverse of what exactly. he was getting at. <laughs> exactly. Like he was saying, and Kubrick was great for, I think his quote is, he was he just wanted to bring out what was already there in people. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying in Clockwork is, this is you, humans. You all have the capacity to kill. You have the capacity to rape. But you also have the capacity to love Beethoven. And so yeah. that's what Alex is, yeah. and that's what the movie's saying. But people saw it, like, kind of with Joker, and they said, oh, it's, it's causing violence, and it's causing... Mm-hmm. But that's not what he was going for. And, it's, right. and there's so many ridiculous scenes that how can you go... Like the the scene where they're in the casino, right? The derelict, yeah, the derelict casino, uh, and they're playing. They, it's straight like WWE, where there's yeah. people flying through the air, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's so over the top that it's not. It's zany. But the then movie is those zany. people got really hurt during that scene. Yeah, they're throwing like glass. That, but um, <laughs> but then the very next scene, he's raping someone in a house, singing, singing in the rain. It's so over the top, and I don't think people knew. How to take it? I, I love how they took they they used the improvise Malcolm McDowell improvised to do singing in the rain during the scene, uh, and Kubrick agreed to it, and how they implemented it later in the film when he starts singing mm-hmm. it in the bathtub. The trigger and the face that guy makes, yeah. like whenever he hears it, is just so like I I can I can see oh, it I right now that. in my head. That like, was one it, of my it's favorite just, scenes. It's just the haunting shot. Of, of, of what's happening to that guy's PTSD. What also is great about that, and we talked about this in class, is kind of the meta-textual that's uh-huh. there about, and it's implicating the viewer at the time wanting to watch this stuff. So at the time, the studio systems collapsed, and you were getting a lot of that grindhouse porno flick stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's almost a commentary on, you wanted to watch it, now we're watching it. And so that's why you see a lot of scenes of, like with Alex with the treatment where he's watching these graphic violent right. scenes and he can't stomach it. But then you as a viewer are sitting and watching, like you, you went are. to the theater to see it. And so it's almost like Kubrick thumbing at you. Like, right. Yeah. Like little, you wanted to meta. see it. And what's also kind of cool too, uh, is that whenever, whenever his PTSD is triggered and they get him and they put him up in the basement and it's, it goes to that shot first on him yeah, uh, the, the writer re- and the it, it, it does the exact thing same thing it does in the opening of pulling away from him uh-huh. and his droog so to say are the the woman and the man it's and like the journalist and the yeah, yeah yeah and the guy who plays Darth Vader subsequently yeah, yeah, later yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's just a brilliant brilliant film it's the film that made me look at film differently and it will always have a special place in my heart, no matter how fucked up it is. Same. <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to reset this real quick. Just okay. I, I think we're good. I'm just being safe about it. So, <laughs> Like, yeah. How much time do we have? We have about... Uh, the people are always we're, late we're, that come we're, after we're, us. We're, yeah, we're, we're, we I was have... I ask you what our... We, we, have, we have three films left. We have 15 uh, minutes, you, roughly. Do you, do, you 15 ha- minutes. do you have a time? I mean, we don't have to get out of here, because there's no show after us. But oh, is, is, no, I don't no. have a time. I don't, have I don't time. think the time was ever filled. Because that's no. why no one's ever the schedule here. has someone on at six. Well, I know, but they've never come they've in. They've never oh, been yeah. here, so who knows? 
Uh, right. Do you have a time limit, uh, no, personally? No. no? Okay. That's what I said. I'm not. I'm we, all right. We can go until someone shows up. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless someone shows up, we'll go till we finish through Eyes Wide yeah. Shut. So we only have, we have Barry Lyndon, Full Metal, and Eyes Wide Shut left. And Barry so, Lyndon, you could talk for. Oh, yeah. We, could, we can talk for even longer than we did for 2001. So Wait, let's go ahead. Have you seen Barry Lyndon? You've seen, yes. Everybody's seen it? All right. Yeah. So w- we, we touched on it earlier. I think we all universally agree that despite being released at arguably the height of Kubrick's career, it is somehow managed to be his most low-key film. Yeah. Uh, the most under-viewed of the... It's a c- compared to the theatrical Remember yesterday when we were looking at the IMDb ratings, I was wanting to see who, how many votes were on each movie, and it was, like, leaps and bounds the lowest. Like, yeah. it was 125,000 votes, whereas, like, The Shining has, like, 855,000 as the highest, and even, uh-huh. like, a middle-of-the-ground movie, Paz of Glory, had, like, 600,000. Mm-hmm. Clockwork like, had 700,000. I'm like, that is crazy to me that, like... If you love movie, you have to see Barry Lyndon. Absolutely, is it, it's. I it, often argue, is it his masterpiece? Is that like his like best camera work? I, I, Allison and I were talking about it earlier that um, it, it it is arguably maybe his masterpiece, and that uh, what, what was the other thing we talked about, Allison? Well, I so I like made a comment because we were talking about like coloring. It was in color, yes. oh, and man. we're talking about like the candle lit scenes and how obviously mm-hmm. color was needed to make that look as amazing, but I would love to see that movie in black and white because I think it would have a totally different type of tone. That'd be interesting. A cut of it, you mean? Yeah. Like, well, I love the movie because it reminds me of the the era they're trying to capture. It reminds me of just very classical paintings. Like every yeah. way the way he sets up those shots, I'm just like I don't under it's unlike anything I've ever really seen. W- w- one one yeah. thing that's weird to me about Barry Lyndon I love I love what it brings to the table, but it's noticeable how that movie, in terms of lighting and coloring, could have been a lot more refined mm-hmm. than it than they chose to make it. Oh, yeah. Where there's almost a sort of halo effect uh, in the in mm. the broad daylight scenes, and the colors are not very bold; they're more pastelish. Well, and he had special lenses developed for that for really. it to capture. So that was one of the first film to capture natural light. The candle. So they. The actors had to learn how to act around the candles, and they had to move a certain way because he actually had lenses developed for, like, these old-ass cameras he found in the basement somewhere. And then he mm-hmm. called the camera department and said, I need these lenses filtered. And he developed a lens to capture That's so crazy. That net because it's hard to capture candlelight. Like just right, natural. right. So he had special lenses developed so that they could act around that candlelight, which the actor said it, it became easier, but it was tough at first. What, that's just one of the things a, that makes it a another thing that's kind of funny yeah. about me to for barry linden is that i love the movie it's a, it's among my personal favorites of his that's al- almost all of my personal favorites honestly. <laughs> yeah, they really um, are. It's, it's funny because i love the movie but i actually hate its opening i do not like the opening of barry linden with with barry and the girl and she like slips the thing in her oh, bra yeah, yeah, yeah. i hate that opening I, don't, I, I really don't know why there's just something about it the that just doesn't wise, that just mean? doesn't click for me it's so kubrick it, it, it's, though. It's, it's, yeah it is it's, <laughs> it's 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 a relevant opening for the first like 15 minutes but af- yeah. a- after about the 20 25 minute mark it kind of moves past the entire issue that's brought to the forefront of the opening and it also shows though that Barry Lyndon's character is such a a rogue, I guess they would have called right. him back then. He's not likable. There's nothing about him that's likable. Per- per- personally, I think he's likable up until the first half of the uh, first half he's, of the movie. Yeah, he's all right uh, when he's younger. Un- until he attains what it is that he desires, he's likable to me. But it's a, I think the one of my original, favorite characters, though, honestly. The original title is the, tra- I think it's the tragedy of, uh, I think I can't remember because it's actually from an 18th century novel. It, 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 it Barry Lyndon's character kind of reminds me. Uh, there's a lot of 
opposites, but it's all, it honestly, the whole movie kind of rings like a Forrest Gump like movie to me where you see this character progressing yeah, through yeah, various it's stages an of his life, of life uh, an, yeah. ep- an epic of a specific character. Yeah. Although you're also thrown on very opposite ends where Forrest Gump is arguably one of the most likable characters in cinematic history yeah. and Barry Lyndon turns into a total sleazebag by the end. Yeah. And uh, he's just using people. Right. Yeah. It, money. it fascinates me, though, as a kid. I think he's one of the most fascinating characters that Kubrick's ever done for me personally. Like I, I don't, agree. I like I, I I don't know what it, I guess it is just that antihero raw realism. There's not a lot of zaniness to it, but but yeah. People, oh, do the people actually show people. up this time? That's funny. Oh, <laughs> it, but yeah, I I, I don't know. It's early. Yeah, <laughs> Barry Lyndon to me is a masterpiece, mostly just because of how like it feels very true to the style he's trying to go for. It's not like this over the top element on, right. on the film. An- another thing I think is worth mentioning before we move on to Barry, Le- move on from Barry Lyndon real quick is just how I think part of why he s- chose that setting in that film was because he wasn't able to get his Napoleon film off the ground. Yeah, it was. Uh, so all right, moving on to the Shining. My shame, favorite. shame that Shining's we have such favorite. little timing to talk That's about the Shining. Shining is my favorite. Um, I mean, it's Kubrick. This this episode could have been four hours if we really wanted it to be. Shining. Um, but it's Kubrick's first and only horror film, and I think I think it shows his ability to go from genre to genre, especially given that it's regarded as one of the best horror films. of it's all It's so influential, though. The type of horror we get now, like the Lighthouse, mm-hmm. which. Midsummer, Hereditary, us. like you would not get that type of horror without The Shining. It's it's disturbing, right? It's kind of gotten a renaissance recently, and I don't know if that's because the age I age of the directors now were probably growing up on The Shining. But when it came out, people didn't. There's uh, atmospheric horror wasn't a thing. You were getting into slasher movies, and mm. he comes out with this, and they're like, "What is it? It's what? slow." Where's Michael it's like, Myers? Yeah, it's two and a half hours. I think it's one of the best horrors ever made, if not no, the best. Yeah, it it just because be it, it, just because of the fact that it is just atmosphere. It's, it's just smart. atmosphere. It's a smart movie. Like the, the Overlook Hotel is so foreboding. Yeah. Like it has just like the Monolith in two thousand one. It has a presence of its own, despite being an inanimate object. And, and it's just, all based on psychology and just the dread, the the mm. whole movie, the way it builds up, and it's just unnerving. That that's, I mean, that's the best horror now. I mean, you still have garbage horror movies coming out, but the best ones now, you can clearly point and go, "Yep, that's." They watched The Shining once or twice. Do, yeah. Do, do, do yeah. you guys know why it is that Stephen King dislikes The Shining so much? He doesn't like his, well, the portrayal of Jack, right? Yeah, yes. I was gonna say there's like this huge theory about Fuck you, who stupid Jack, how, like, <laughs> uh, agreed about the way he took Jack's character that is completely polar opposite than how it is in the book. It's not necessarily but Kubrick, polar opposite, honestly. Well, I don't even think it's, honestly it's Kubrick wasn't even trying to make an adaptation it, it, of the book it's, completely. It's, it's, I don't think at all. He took inspiration, obviously, yeah, but he wanted yeah. to go in his own. It's it's one it's route. one of those things where like Jack's character in The Shining basically starts like Normal. like at, like basically at a point in the book where Jack is like three fourths of the way through the book where he's already kind of getting crazy yeah. and I has these families. The book, have we all read the book? Yeah, I've read the book. I, I have just recently yeah. finished the book. Yeah, Jack, you were supposed to finish it. I've read, I've read the book. <laughs> I think Jack is better. I like. He's boring in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more well. He's, a lot of that. The, the the problem that Stephen had like on the record, the thing he had is that the casting of Jack Nicholson just after Cuckoo's Nest, a guy who's yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly typecast as being this over the top, like you're the scary character. He's like, he wanted it to be a shock. You wanted to have a character you loved and empathized with, this warm and gentle father, not this guy who might possibly be like an abuser. And then it's just like, I'm Jack Nicholson. I'm going to bash your (laughs) fucking brains in. You know, like he didn't like that. I I think it works for the movie. I think it works. Oh, it's over the top and it's great. Part of it is because Jack in the book is Stephen King that he's Stephen King. It's his most autobiographical character. Character. So for it to be so different in the movie than versus in the book. But can I just say, 
to Stephen King when he listens to this, like, get over it. I'm sick of seeing. Like, yeah, I it, saw an article two days ago where he's like, oh. Uh, Doctor Sleep, yeah. Doctor Sleep is the greatest version. Shut up, man. Speaking of speaking of Doctor Sleep, I did I did want to get your opinion on. Really, you haven't? I didn't see it either. (laughs) I I, 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 I just saw it recently, and what I did you see it? Yeah, I did. And like the thing is, a lot of people like what pisses me off is everybody that sees it, they're like expecting something like The Shining. it's not like right, the shine, and, and, like Kubrick shining at all, and, because it's not even based completely off of the and, book. And, and the thing, like Doctor Sleep and, and was. The, and the thing is that they're not trying to be like Kubrick's movie. Yeah. Th- th- that's what pleasantly surprised me so much is that they don't try to be Kubrick. They don't yeah. try right. to take the shining. But they yeah, use but it it's very it their like own. Stephen King was and very they, put a stamp. I, 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 I like yeah. this. You I, can I, make I, this I will movie admit. I will admit that the. The, towards the end of the movie, you get a bit That's more fanfic. <laughs> you get a bit more fan service than you need towards the end yeah. of the movie. The I'll re- just watch the shining. The, the, the reasoning, <laughs> the reasoning of going to the hotel is pretty solid, but the execution of them being at the hotel could have been a lot better. Uh, it was risky even going there in the first place. But what I will say, man, is that it was a really big, pleasant surprise for me. I went into it not expecting to like it, but the movie stood stood on its own. Didn't try to be the shining, but made. Honestly, worthwhile connections. You and McGregor did great, yeah, in my you opinion. Yeah, McGregor's fine. I just um, <sighs> the child actor who I always I couldn't ha- even get through the book. I-, I always have a problem with child actors, but the child actor of the movie did awesome as well. Um, Here's my thing with Stephen King, and I will preach up and down. The movie is better than the book. Sorry, Stephen. It's it, way it's, better. It's fine. Yeah, it's just a better. And you're right. Kubrick was doing something different. He took it and said, "This is mine. Like this is a Kubrick." The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's why it says that. And Stephen King, and I get writing it and having it as your baby, but once it's out there, it's out there. Anybody right. could take it. And as yeah. a writer, he should be able to go, you know what? That's what the, I mean, Hemingway did it. Yeah. Yeah. it. I would be excited that somebody was so passionate about something I yeah. wrote and, not and that a, had their it's, own. It's, it's not just anybody. So it's fucking it. Stanley Kubrick. Right. Yeah. But it's not bad, though. I, I would understand if he was if it was, yeah, if it was, if it was, like, if it was a really shitty. But it's like, dude, he took his own vision with it. He wasn't even trying to encapsulate your vision. Like, yeah. that's right. what confuses Stephen King me. hates when people take his stuff and then yeah. don't get his stamp of approval. He has all, like. He has all say now on his. Like, oh. he's kind of Sits overrated on many it, aspects. No, super, I, I love it. Shawshank Redemption <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, it, I think it that's chapter great... two was not so bueno, but I was. Yeah. I will say, the I was. I was. I was pleasantly surprised with it. I thought it was yeah. really good. Yeah. I mean, in both movies, Bill Skarsgård is Pennywise. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just Amazing. fucking ludicrous. Yeah. I mean. I, I like mean, you, you could give that character as much screen time as you wanted, and I'd be there to eat it up. I agree with The Shining being probably my favorite Kubrick film. It's I've only seen it once, and it is oh, so you have to watch it's it crystal clear in times. my head. That's <laughs> no, what I'm saying is it had the most, it had the biggest impact out of almost any movie I've ever Maybe seen. We could talk about the genocide of the Native I wish Americans. We, that's what I'm saying. No, no, I, I I got all that the first time I watched it. That's yeah. what's crazy. Like the movie really presents itself fully. I wish we had more time than just two I minutes. Because yeah, uh, I, I have shot. so many like theories about. Like, I was talking about Logan like a couple hours. Hours ago, that I would love to get your yeah, input on, but I we just we'll don't have to have you back. The somehow, bear, man. the we bear. Ha- we should the do fucking this. bear. <laughs> we should have you back again to talk more it's about Danny's like, sexual abuses. I know. That's I'll, what I'll, I want to talk about. That's what I want like, to talk what? about. What? Yeah. Because like yeah. I wanted to really ask. I wanted to pick your brain a lot about like legacy on Kubrick and like yeah. what it was about him that made you form this obsession and all of that. I, w- I know. I'd like to understand that. For the sake of the episode, the fact that we've discussed all the other movies, let's just do a real short thing. Full Metal Jacket. What are your thoughts? I like Full Metal Jacket. I thought um, you hated Full it's, Metal Jacket. It's not my favorite. I, did, I didn't think I so. I need to watch it again. As far as Vietnam movies go, um, 
I think uh, it I, th- I think it does a good job of capturing the actual people of Vietnam and how they felt about Americans being on yeah, their. Yeah, Apocalypse Now does it better. I lo- that was about to say Apocalypse Now is my favorite Vietnam movie. One of my um, favorite war movies of all time. Period. Yeah, but that's very it's a very surreal adaptation of like Heart of Darkness. But Great I will say documentary, by the way, I will say um, what was it? Full Metal Jacket the training scenes or that training sequence the, the, fir- first, the half first half of the movie amazing. the first half of the movie is what makes full metal uh-huh. jacket what it is yeah and the second half is not necessarily bad it's just so overshadowed by how good the first right. half is yeah. that whenever you lose your drill sergeant you lose the training camp mentality you lose a lot in that film you lose what the film is i probably need to come back because i had a lot to say about eyes wide shut because i love eyes wide shut so do i and let's, i love tom cruise well, so. we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll schedule you again yeah. we can do this sometime in the next couple of weeks if you want to we yeah. could easily yeah. if, if your time works for you because well, yeah. we could get you in here and we could just have a part two Absolutely. of a kubrick episode really yeah. Yeah. you guys want to do that if there's any, if do yeah, a part i still two? have so down. much to say about the shining still there's things that i like to talk about we could i want to talk about eyes wide i think we should i thought i don't think we should butcher it then i think we should just save it for like maybe on like March fifth or whatever, yeah. we can okay. do another one. Just shoot me an email. And yeah, I got you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and we are out of time. I mean, it makes yeah. sense. It's Kubrick, so I mean, of course, I honestly, I honestly thought we would run out of time, just like we yeah. have. Yeah. Um, it's just a sign of how great the director is. And uh, Dustin, thank you very much for Thanks coming for on me. once again. Yeah. Hunter, yeah, Allison, so this is Logan Lusk. Thank you very much for listening to AVHD podcast. See you next time. <laughs>